The following is a conversation with Lee Cronin, a chemist from University of Glasgow, who's one of the most fascinating, brilliant, out-of-the-box thinking scientists I've ever spoken to. This episode was recorded more than two weeks ago, so the war in Ukraine is not mentioned. I have been spending a lot of time each day talking to people in Ukraine and Russia. I have family, friends, colleagues, and loved ones in both countries. I will try to release a solo episode on this war, but I've been failing to find the words that make sense of it for myself and others, so I may not. I ask for your understanding no matter which path I take. Most of my time is spent trying to help as much as I can privately. I'm talking to people who are suffering, who are angry, afraid. When I returned to this conversation with Lee, I couldn't help but smile. He's a beautiful, brilliant, and hilarious human being. He's basically a human manifestation of the mad scientist Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty. I thought about quitting this podcast for a time, but for now at least, I'll keep going. I love people too much. You, the listener. I meet folks on the street or when I run. You say a few kind words about the podcast and we talk about life, the small things and the big things. All of it gives me hope. People are just amazing. You are amazing. I ask for your support, wisdom, and patience as I keep going with this silly little podcast, including through some difficult conversations and hopefully many fascinating and fun ones too. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. First is Paperspace, a platform I use to train and deploy machine learning models. Second is Athletic Greens, the all-in-one nutrition drink I drink twice a day. Third is Notion, a note-taking and team collaboration tool. Fourth is Blinkist, the app I use to read summaries of books. Fifth is Onnit, a nutrition, supplement, and fitness company. So the choice is machine learning, note-taking, literary wisdom, or health. Choose wisely, my friends. And now onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I hate those. I try to make these uh, ad reads interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out the sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Paperspace Gradient, which is a platform that lets you build, train, and deploy machine learning models of any size and complexity. I use it. I'm likely going to use it for a couple of machine learning experiments. Fast.ai, a course I highly recommend, run by Jeremy Howard and friends. You can host notebooks on there. You can swap out the compute instance at any time, do a small scale GPU instance or even a CPU instance, and then swap it out once your compute needs increase. I'm excited about what they call workflows, which provides a way to automate ML pipelines on top of gradient compute infrastructure. Everything is super easy with simple YAML configuration files. If you want to give it a try, visit gradient.run slash Lex and use the signup link there. You'll get 15% in free credits, which you can use to power your next machine learning application. That's gradient.run slash Lex. This show is also brought to you by Athletic Greens and its newly renamed AG1 drink which is an all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. It replaced the multivitamin for me. 
And it goes way beyond that with uh, 75 vitamins and minerals. It's the first thing I drink every day before I break the fast. I drink it twice a day now. What I just said is still true today, even though I haven't eaten for close to 24 hours and I ran a very long distance today and I still feel great. The thing I do miss, and I'll make sure I drink it before I get to bed, is uh, Athletic Greens. Because whatever crazy diet I do, whatever the crazy exercise, whatever fun adventures this universe pulls me into, I can always count on, on Athletic Greens to save me. They'll give you one month supply of fish oil when you sign up to athleticgreens.com slash lex. That's athleticgreens.com slash lex. This show is also brought to you by Notion, a note-taking and team collaboration tool. Honestly, every time I talk to people about note-taking, which is something I really care about, they always bring up Notion. When you're doing collaboration with a team, you really have to have legit great tools. It's not just for your own individual note-taking. And I think that's what they want you to know about, which is it's also for teams. You can do note-taking, document sharing, wikis, project management, and much more uh, all in one space that's simple, powerful, and beautifully designed. If you're a startup, Notion can provide a full-on operating system for running every aspect of your company as it grows quickly. I love that they're referring to a note-taking app as an operating system. It is for humans. That's fascinating. Notion is running a special offer just for startups. Get up to $1,000 off Notion's team plan by going to notion.com slash startups. To give you a sense, that's almost a year of free Notion for a team of 10. Go to notion.com slash startups. That's notion.com slash startups. This show is also brought to you by Blinkist my favorite app for learning new things. Blinkist takes the key ideas from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. I mean, I could go on forever recommending books on there. Uh, the, the really big nonfiction books are always on there, like Sapiens, um, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. The Snowden book is on there. It just goes on and on. And I, I use it in many ways. One is to review books I've already read. Two is to consider future books I want to read. And three is summarize books that just feel like I'm never going to get a chance to read. Life is short, but they're nevertheless very important books. So if a discussion is happening about them, I should at least have an intuitive understanding of the key ideas. Go to Blinkist.com slash Lex to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off of a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist.com slash Lex spelled Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Lex. This episode is brought to you by Onnit, nutrition, supplement, and fitness company. Onnit makes AlphaBrain, which is a nootropic that helps support memory, mental speed, and focus. I use it as a boost when thinking through a difficult problem in a deep work session, when I know it's going to be full of dead ends, full of self-doubt, full of uncertainty. Like I have no idea how to solve the problem. This is often true when I'm designing something uh, for a program. So if I'm programming and I'm in the early stages of designing the project, I'm thinking through how's the data going to be stored. And when I'm thinking about all of this, sometimes with a sheet of paper, sometimes just in my mind, focused. You know, I'll take an alpha brain, not every day, but one especially difficult problem, 
It helps. It helps clear the mind. It helps maintain focus. Go to lexfriedman.com slash onnit to get up to 10% off Alpha Brain. That's lexfriedman.com slash onnit. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Lee Cronin. How do you think life originated on Earth? And what insights does that give us about life? If we go back to the origin of Earth and you think about maybe 4.7, 4.6, 4.5 billion years ago, the planet was quite hot. There was a limited number of minerals. There was some carbon, some water. And I think that maybe it's a really simple set of chemistry that we, we really don't understand. So that means you've got a finite number of elements that are going to react very simply with one another. And out of that mess comes a cell. So literally sand turns into cells. And it seems to happen quick. So what I think I can say with some degree of, I think not certainty, but curiosity, genuine curiosity is that life happened fast. Yeah, so when we say fast, this is a pretty surprising fact, and maybe you can actually correct me and elaborate, but it it seems like most like 70 or 80% of the time that Earth has been around, there's been life on it, like some very significant percentage. So when you say fast, like the slow part is from single cell or from bacteria to some more complicated organism, it seems sure. like. Most of the time that Earth has been around, it's been single cell or like very basic organisms, like a couple billion years. But yeah, you're right. That That's really, I recently kind of revisited our history and saw this and, I was just looking at the timeline. Wait a minute. Like, how did life just spring up so quickly? Like, really quickly. That makes me think that it really wanted to. Like, put another way, it's very easy for life to spring. Yeah, I agree. I think it's much more inevitable. And I think um, I try to kind of, not provoke, but try and push chemists to think about, because chemists are part essential to this problem, right? Of understanding the origin of life on earth, at least, because we're made of of chemistry. But I wonder if the origin of life on a planet, or sorry, the emergence of life on the planet is as um, common as the formation of a star. And if you start framing it in that way, it allows you to then look at the universe slightly differently, because um, and we can get into this, I think, in quite some detail. But I think I to to come back to your question, I have r- little idea of how life got started, but I know it was simple, and I know that the process of selection had to occur before the biology was established. So that selection built the framework from which life kind of grew in complexity and capability and functionality and autonomy. And I think these are all really important words that we can unpack over the next uh, while. Can you say all the words again? So you said selection. Mm -hmm. So natural selection, the original A-B testing. And so, and then complexity, and then uh, the degree of autonomy and sophistication. Because I think that people misunderstand what life is. Um, Some people say that life is a cell, and some people that say that life is a, um, a virus or life is a you know, an on-off switch. I don't think it's that. Life is the universe developing a memory. 
And um, the laws of physics and the way, well, there are no laws of physics. Physics is just memory-free stuff, right? <laughs> so there's only a finite number of ways you can arrange the fundamental particles to do the things. Life is the universe developing a memory. So yes. it's like sewing a piece of art slowly and then you can look back at it. So, so there's a stickiness to life. It's like universe doing stuff. Yeah. And when you say memory, it's like there's a stickiness to a bunch of the stuff that's building together. Yeah. So like you can, in a uh, stable way, like um, trace back the complexity and that tells a c coherent story. Yeah. And I think, yeah. Okay. That's, by the way, very poetic. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Life is the universe developing a memory. Hmm. Okay. And then there's autonomy. You said complexity we'll talk about, but mm -hmm. it's a really interesting idea that selection preceded biology. Yeah, I Did, think... Yeah, so so what, first of all, what is chemistry? Like the sand still count as chemistry? Sure. I mean, as a chemist, a card-carrying chemist, if I'm allowed a card, I don't know. I don't know what I am most days. What actually. is the card made of? <laughs> What's the chemical composition of the card? Yeah. So um, what is chemistry? Well, chemistry is the thing that happens when you bring electrons together and you form bonds. So bonds, or I say to people when they talk about life elsewhere, um, and I just say, well, there's bonds, there's hope. Because mm. bonds allow you to get heterogeneity. They allow you to record those memories, or at least on Earth. Um, you could imagine... Uh, you know, a Stanislav Lem-type world where you might have life emerging or intelligence emerging before life. That may be something to, on you know, like Solaris or something. But, yeah. you know, to get to s selection, if you can form, if atoms can combine and form bonds, those bonds, uh, uh, those atoms can bond to different elements and those, and those molecules will have different identities and interact with each other differently. And then you can start to have some degree of causation or interaction and then selection, and then put, and then existence, and then you 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 go you go up the kind of the path of complexity, and so at least on Earth, as we know it, there are there is a sufficient pool of available chemicals to start create searching that combinatorial space of bonds. So okay, this is a really interesting question. Let's let's lay it out. So bonds, almost like cards. We say there's bonds. There is uh, life, there's intelligence, there's consciousness. And what you just made me realize is um, it, those can emerge, or let's put bonds aside, uh, those can emerge in any order. Mm -hmm. That's that's really brilliant. So intelligence can come before life. It's like panpsychists believe that consciousness, I guess, comes before life and before intelligence. So consciousness like permeates all matter, it's some kind of fabric of reality. Okay, so like within this framework, you can kind of arrange everything, but you need to have the bonds um, that precedes everything else. Mm -hmm. Oh, and the other thing is selection. Mm -hmm. So like the mechanism of selection, that could uh, proceed. See, couldn't that proceed bonds too? Whatever the hell selection so is. So I would say that there is an elegant order to it. That, uh, bonds allow selection, allows the emergence of life, allows the emergence of multicellularity, and then inf more information processing, building state machines all the way up. However, you could imagine a situation if you had um, 
I don't know, a neutron star or a sun or what, a ferromagnetic loops interacting with one another and these oscillators building state machines and these state machines reading something out in the environment. Over time, these state machines would be able to um, literally record what happened in the past and sense what's going on the, in the present and imagine the future. However, I don't think it's ever going to be with, within a human comprehension, that type of life. Um, I wouldn't count it out because... Um, you know, whenever you, I know in science, whenever I say something's impossible, I then wake up the next day and say, no, that's actually wrong. I mean, there are, there are some limits, of course. Um, I don't see myself traveling fast and light anytime soon. But Eric Weinstein says that's possible. So he will say you're wrong. Sure. But I'm an experimentalist as well. So one of my, I have two superpowers. Um, my stupidity, and I don't mean that as a, you know, I'm like absolutely completely witless, but I mean my ability to kind of just start again and ask the question and then do it with an experiment. I always wanted to be a theoretician growing up, but I just didn't have the just didn't have the intellectual capability. Mm -hmm. But I, I was able to think of experiments in my head I could then do in my lab or in the you know when I was a when I was a child, outside, and then those experiments in my head and then outside reinforced one another. So I think that's a very good way of kind of grounding the science, right? Well, that's a ni nice way to think about theoreticians is they're just people who run experiments in their head. I mean, yeah. that's exactly what Einstein did, right? And, yeah. But you're also capable of doing that in the head, in your head, inside your head and in the real world. And the connection between the two is when you first discovered your superpower of stupidity. I like it. Yes. Okay, what's there the second go. superpower? Oh. Your accent or is <laughs> <laughs> that? Well, I don't know. Um, my, I like, I am genuinely curious. So my curious, so I have a, you know, like everybody ego problems, but my curiosity is bigger than my ego. So as long as that happens, <laughs> I, I can, I can, I can uh, That's awesome. <laughs> that is so powerful. You're just dropping some powerful lines. So curiosity is bigger than ego. That's something I have to think about because you always struggle about the role of ego in life and, um, that's that's so nice to think about. Don't think about the size of ego, the absolute size of ego. Think about the relative size of ego to the other, the other horses pulling at you. And if the curiosity one is bigger, yep. then uh, ego will uh, do just fine and make you uh, fun to talk to. Anyway, so those are the two superpowers. How do those connect to natural selection or selection and bonds? And I forgot already, life and consciousness. <laughs> So we're going back to selection in the universe and origin of life on Earth. I mean, um, selection ha is a force. I'm convinced that selection is a force in the universe. Uh, not mean not a fundamental force, but a but a directing. But it is a directing force because existence, although um, existence appears to be the default, um, the existence of what? Why does? Um, and we can get to this later, I think. But it's amazing that that discrete things exist. And, you know, you see this cup. It's not the, you know, the sexiest cup in the world, but it's pretty functional. This cup, um, the complexity of this cup isn't just in the object. It is literally the lineage of people making cups and recognizing that, seeing that in their head, making an abstraction of a cup and then making a different one. So I wonder how many billions of cups have, you know, come before this one. And that's the process of selection and existence. And the only reason the cup is still used is quite useful. I like the handle, you know, it's convenient so I don't die, I keep hydration. Um, and so I think we are missing something fundamental in the universe about selection. And I think what biology is, is a, is a selection amplifier. And that the, this is where autonomy comes in. And actually I think that how humanity is gonna, humans and, 
and uh, autonomous robots or whatever we're going to call them in the future will will supercharge that even further. So selection is happening in the universe. But if you look in the asteroid belt, selection, if um, objects are being kicked in and out of the asteroid belt, um, those trajectories are quite complex. You don't really look at that as productive selection because it's not doing anything to improve its function. But is it? The asteroid belt has existed for some time. So there is some selection going on, but the functionality is, is somewhat limited. On Earth, um, at the formation of Earth, interaction of chemicals and molecules in the environment gave selection, and then things could happen. Because you could think about, in chemistry, we can have an infinite number of reactions happen, but they don't all, ha- all the reactions that are allowed to happen don't happen. Why? Because there are energy barriers. So there must be some things called catalysts out there, or there are bits of minerals that when two molecules get together on that mineral, it lowers the energy barrier for the reaction, and so the reaction is is promoted. So suddenly you get one reaction over another of a series of possibilities occurring that makes a particular molecule, and this keeps happening in steps. And before you know it, these almost these waves as discrete reactions work together, and you start to build a machinery that... That, that is run by existence. So as you, you go forward in time, the fact that the molecules, um, the bonds are getting, there are more bonds in a molecule, there's more function, there's more capability for this molecule to interact with other molecules, to, to redirect them. It's like a series of little, and I don't want to use this term too much, but it's almost thinking about uh, the, the simplest von Neumann constructor that's the simplest molecule that could build a more complicated molecule to build a more complicated molecule. And before you know it, when that more complicated molecule can act on the causal chain that's produced itself and change it, suddenly you start to get towards some kind of autonomy. And that's where life, I think, emerges in earnest. Every single word in, in, in the past few paragraphs, let's uh, break those apart. <laughs> uh, who's von Neumann? What's the constructor? The closing of the loop that you're talking about uh, the the molecule that starts becoming the I think you said like the smallest von Neumann constructor yeah the smallest the minimal so uh, what do all those things mean and what is uh, uh, what are we supposed to imagine when we think about the smallest uh, von Neumann constructor so uh, John von Neumann is a real hero actually not just me but many people I think computer science and uh, and, and physics he was an incredible intellect. Um, who probably solved a lot of the problems that we're working on today and just forgot to write them down. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, I'm not sure if it's John von Neumann or Johnny, as I think his friends called him, but it's, um, I, I think he was Hungarian mathematician, came to the US and um, basically got was involved in the Manhattan Project and developing computation and um, came up with all sorts of ideas. And I think it was one of the first people to come, come up with cellular automata. And but oh, he really, I didn't know this little fact. I think so. I think so. And I think well, anyway, I mean, if he didn't come up with it, he probably did come up with it and didn't write it down. There was a couple of people who did it at the same time, and then Conway obviously took it on, and then Wolfram yeah. Yeah. loves CAs. There is his fabric of the universe, and what I think he imagined was that he wasn't satisfied. And th- th- this may be incorrect recollection, but this, so a lot of what I say is going to be kind of you know just okay. way out of my uh... you're Lee, you're just part of the universe <laughs> um creating its memory designing exactly okay, yeah. yeah rewriting yeah. history rewriting history. exactly <laughs> imperfectly so but what i mean is i think he he would he liked this idea of thinking about um how could a 
Turing machine literally build itself without a Turing machine, right? It's like literally how did state machines emerge? And I think that von Neumann constructors, he was wanted to conceive of a minimal thing, autonomer, or, or, or that could build itself. And what would those rules look like in the world? And that's what a von Neumann kind of constructor looked like. Like it's a minimal hypothetical object that could build itself, self-replicate. And, um, and I'm really fascinated by that because I think that um, although it's probably not exactly what happened, um, it's a nice model because as chemists, if we could go back to the origin of life and think about what is a minimal machine that can get structured randomly, so like with no prime mover, with no, with no architect, it assembles through just existence. So random stuff bumping in together and you make this first molecule. So you have molecule A and molecule A um, interacts with another random molecule B and they get together and they realize by working together they can make more of themselves. But then they realize they can mutate so they can make AB prime. So AB prime is different to AB and then AB prime can then act back where A and B were being created and slightly nudge that causal chain and make AB prime more um, evolvable or learn more. So that's the closing the loop part. Closing the loop part, got it. It feels like the mutation part is um, not that difficult. It feels like the difficult part is just creating a copy of yourself as step one. Mm -hmm. It seems... Uh, um, that seems like one of the greatest inventions in the history of the universe is the, the the first molecule that figured out, holy shit, I can create a copy of myself. How hard is that? I think it's really, really easy. Okay, I did not expect that. I think it's really, really easy. Well, let's take a step back. I think replication, replicating molecules are rare, but if you say, you know, I think I was saying on, I, I probably got into trouble on Twitter the other day, so I was trying to work. There's, there's about more than 18 mils of water in there. So one mole of water, 6.022 times 10 to the 23 mo molecules. That's about the number of stars in the universe, I think, of the order. Mm -hmm. so, so there's three universe worth. But between oh, one somebody and corrected you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> as ever. I'm always being corrected. It's a great fact. But, but there's a lot of molecules in the water. Yeah. And so, and so there's a lot of, so although it's for you and me really hard to conceive of, if existence is not the default for a long period of time, because what happens is the molecules get degraded. So, so much of the possibilities in the universe are just broken back into atoms. So you have this, um, this kind of um, destruction of the molecules for our chemical reactions. So you only need one or two molecules to become good at copying themselves for them suddenly to then take resources in the pool and start to grow. And so then replication actually over time, when you have bonds, I think is much simpler and much easier. And I even found this in my lab years ago. I had one of the reasons I started doing inorganic chemistry and making rust, making a bit of rust based on a thing called molybdenum, molybdenum oxide, is this molybdenum oxide is very simple. But when you add acid to it and some electrons, they make these molecules you just cannot possibly imagine. Um, would be constructed big gigantic wheels of 154 molybdenum atoms in a wheel or an icosadodecahedron with 132 molybdenum atoms all in the same pot and i realized when i and i just finished experiments two years ago i've just published a couple of papers on this that the, there actually there is a random small molecule with 12 atoms in it that can form randomly but it happens to template its own production and then by chance it templates the ring 
just an accident, just like just an absolute accident. And that ring also helps make the small 12 mer. And so you have what's called an autocatalytic set where A um, makes B and B helps make A and, and vice versa. And you then make this loop. So it's a bit like um, um, these, they all work in, in synergy to make this chain of events that grow. Um, and it doesn't take um, a very sophisticated model to show that if you have these objects are competing and then collaborating to help one another build, they just grow out of the mess. And although they seem improbable, they are improbable, in fact, impossible in one step. There's multiple steps. This is when the blind people look at the blind watchmaker argument when you talk mm -hmm. about how could a watch spontaneously emerge. Well, it doesn't. It's a lineage of watches and cruder mm -hmm. devices that 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 couple are bootstrapped onto one another. Right. Uh, so it's very improbable. But once you get that little discovery, like with the wheel mm -hmm. and um, fire, it just gets explodes in because it's so successful it explodes it's basically selection so this templating mechanism that allows you to have a little like blueprint for yourself how you go through different procedures is to build copies of yourself i don't so i uh in chemistry somehow it's possible to imagine that that kind of thing is easy to sp spring up in more complex organisms, it feels like a different thing and much more complicated. Like uh, mm -hmm. we're having like uh, multiple abstractions of the birds and the bees conversation here, but with with human, sorry, with com complex organisms, it feels like difficult to have reproduction. Uh, to uh, that's going to get clipped out. I'm going to make fun of that. Um, <laughs> uh, it's diff it's difficult to develop this idea of making copies of yourself, or no. Because uh, that seems like a magical idea for life to, uh, or, wow. That feels like very necessary for what selection is, for what evolution is. But then if selection precedes all of this, then maybe these are just like echoes of the selection, the selecting mechanism at different scales. Yeah, that's exactly it. So selection is the default in the universe, if you want to. And what happens is that life, the solution that, that life has got on Earth, life on Earth, biology on Earth, um, is unique to Earth. We can talk about that, um, and that was really hard fought for. But that was that is a solution that works on Earth, the ribosome, the fundamental machine that is responsible for every life or you know every cell on Earth of whatever wherever it is in the in the kingdom of life. That is an incredibly complex object. But it was evolved over time, and it wasn't involved in a vacuum. And I think that once we understand that selection can um, occur um, without the ribosome, but what the ribosome does, it, it's a phase transition in replication. And I think that that, and also technology, that, that is uh, um, probably much easier to get to than we think. Why, why do you put the, the ribosome as a central um part of living organisms on Earth? It basically is a combination of two different polymer systems, so RNA and peptides. So the RNA world, if you like, gets transmitted and builds proteins, and the proteins are responsible for all the catalysis. The majority of the catalysis goes on in the cell. No ribosome, no proteins, no decoding, 
no evolution. So ribosome is looking at the action. So mm -hmm. You don't put like the RNA itself as, as the critical thing, like information, you, you put action as the most important yeah. thing. I think the actual molecules that we have in biology right now are entirely contingent on the history of life on earth. They could, there are so many possible solutions. And this is where chemistry got itself into, origin of life chemistry gets itself into a bit of a trap. Yeah, let me uh, interrupt you there. You've tweeted, you're gonna get, I'm, I'm gonna cite your tweets like it's Shakespeare, okay. okay? It's surprising you haven't gotten canceled on Twitter yet. Um, it's your brilliance once again saves you. Um, I'm just kidding, there's, there's uh, uh, you, you like to have a little bit of fun on Twitter. You've tweeted that quote, origin of life research is a scam. So if this is Shakespeare, can we analyze this word? Why, why is the origin of life research a scam? Aren't you kind of doing origin of life research? Um, okay, it was tongue in cheek, but yeah, I think, and I meant it yeah. um, as tongue in cheek. Um, I am. I'm not doing. Or I'm not doing the origin of life research. I'm trying to make artificial life, mm -hmm. um, and I also want to to bound the likelihood of mate of the origin of life on Earth, but more importantly, to find origin of life elsewhere. But let me directly address the tweet. There are many, many good <laughs> chemists out there doing origin of life research, but I want to nudge them, and I think they're brilliant. Like, they're, like there's no, there's, there's no question. The chemistry they are doing, their motivation is great. So what I meant by that tweet is saying that maybe they're making assumptions about saying, if only uh, I could make this particular type of molecule, say this RNA molecule or this uh, uh, phosphodiester or this other molecule, it's going to somehow unlock the origin of life. And I think that origin of life has been looking at this for a very long time. And whilst I, I think it's brilliant to work out how you can get to those molecules, I think that chemistry and chemists doing origin of life could be nudged into doing something even more profound. And, and so the argument I'm making, it's a bit like right now, let's say, I don't know, the first Tesla that makes its way to, I don't know, into a new country in the world. Let's say, I, let's say there's country X that has never had a Tesla before and they get the Tesla. Russia. <laughs> and they take the test, and what they do is they take the Tesla apart and say, we want to find the origin of, of cars in the universe and say, okay, how did this form and how did this form? Oh, yeah. And they just randomly keep making till they make the door, they make the wheel, they make the steering column and all this stuff. And, and they say, oh, that's the route. That's the, way, that's the way cars emerged on earth. But actually we know that there's a causal chain of cars going right back to Henry Ford and the horse and carriage. Mm -hmm. And before that, maybe, you know, um, where people were using wheels. And, and I think that, obsession with the identities that we see in biology right now are giving us a false sense of security about what we're looking for. And I think the origin of life chemistry is in danger of, of not making the progress that it deserves because the chemists are doing this. There's, there's, the field is exploding right now. There's amazing people out there, young and old, doing this. And there's deservedly so more money going in. You know, I used to complain there's more money being spent searching for the Higgs boson that we know exists than the origin of life. You know, why is that? The origin, we understand the origin of life. We're going to actually work out what life is. And we're going to be out of bound the likelihood of finding life elsewhere in the universe. And most important for us, we are going to know or have a good idea what the future of humanity looks like. You know, we need to understand that although we're precious, we're not the only life forms in the universe. Well, that's my very strong impression. I have no data for that. It's just right now a belief. And I want to turn that belief into a more than a belief by, by experimentation. But I th coming back to the scam, 
the scam is if we just make this RNA, we've 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 got this, you know, this uh, this fluke event. We know how that's simple. Let's make this phosphodiester, or let's make ATP or ADP. We've got that part nailed. Let's now make this other molecule, another molecule. And how many molecules are going to be enough? And then the reason I say this is when you go back to Craig Venter, when he invented his life form, Cyndia, um, this pla- micro, this this minimal plasmid. Uh, it's a is a myoplasma something. I don't know the name of it, but he made this wonderful um, cell and said, "I've I've invented life." Not quite. He facsimiled the genome from this entity and made it in the lab, all the DNA, but he didn't make the cell. He had to take an existing cell that has a causal chain going all the way back to Luca, mm-hmm. and he showed when he took out the gene, the, the genes, and put in his genes, synthesized, the cell could boot up. Mm-hmm. But it's remarkable that he could not make a cell from scratch. And even now, today, synthetic biologists cannot make a cell from scratch because there's some contingent information embodied outside the genome in the cell. And that is just incredible. Um, so there's lots of layers to the scam. Well, let me then ask the question, how can we create life in the lab from scratch? What have been the most promising attempts at creating life in the lab from scratch? Has anyone actually been able to do it? Do you think anyone will be able to do it in the near future if they haven't already? Um, can Yeah, I think that um, nobody has made life in the lab from scratch. Lots of people would argue that they have made progress. So Craig Venter, I think the synthesis of a synthetic genome milestone in, in human uh, uh, achievement. Brilliant. Yeah, can we just walk back and say, what uh, would you say from your perspective, one of the world experts in exactly this area, what does it mean to create life from scratch? Where if you sit back, whether you do it or somebody else does it, it's like, damn, this is, we just created life. Um, well, what I would, I can tell you what I would expect, I would like to be able to do is to go from sand to cells in my lab and. And can I'm, you explain what sand is? You yeah, use just it inorganic, poetically. just inorganic stuff. Like, no, like, like, stuff. basically, just so sand is just silicon, silicon oxide with some other ions in it. Maybe some inorganic carbon, some carbonates. Just basically, clearly dead stuff. You you could just grind rocks into sand, and, and, and it would be what in like in a vacuum, so they could remove anything else that could possibly uh, be. Uh, like a shadow of life that can assist you, in the chemical. You could do that. You could insist and say, "Look, I'm going to take and not just inorganic. I I want some. I want to cheat and have some organic, but I want inorganic, organic." And I'll explain the play on words in a moment. So I would like to basically put into a world, say a completely, you know, uh, a synthetic world, if you like, a closed world. Put some inorganic materials and just literally add some energy in some form, be it lightning or heat, mm-hmm. UV light and run this thing in cycles over time and let it solve the search problem. So I see the origin of life as a search problem in chemical space. And then I would wait, literally wait for a life form to crawl out of the test tube. That's a joke I tell my group. Mm -hmm. Literally wait 
uh, uh, for a very uh, don't worry it's going to be very feeble it's not going to take over the world you know we, there's ways of ethically containing famous it famous last words <laughs> famous, <laughs> indeed 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 but I, I, I you know this is being recorded right it, it'll make you it, it will not make you look good once it crawls out of the, <laughs> the lab and destroys all of human civilization but yes let's... but there is very good there's a very good things you can do to prevent that you, yes. for instance if you put stuff in your world which isn't earth abundant so let's say we make life based on molybdenum and it escapes it would die immediately because there's not enough molybdenum in the environment so we can put in we can we can do it we can do responsible life or as i fantasized with my research group on our away day that would go in it's you know i think it's actually morally we, we if like if we don't find if human until humanity finds life in the universe this is going on a tangent it's our moral obligation to make origin of life bombs identify dead planets and bomb them with our origin of life machines and make yes. them alive I think it is our moral obligation to do that. Um, I'm sure some people might argue with me about that, but I think that we need more life in the universe. And then we kind of forget we we did it, and then come back. If, if, and, and then say, so, where did you come from? But coming back to the what I'd expect. So I just say, father, <laughs> are you back? It's. I think this is once again a Rick and Morty episode. It's definitely, it's definitely all Rick and Morty all the way down. <laughs> so we, I imagine, we have this pristine. Um, experiment and everything is you know sanitized and we put in inorganic materials and we we have cycles with them day night cycles up down whatever and we look for evidence of replication and evolution over time and that's what the experiment should be now are there people doing this in the world right now there are a couple of there's some really good groups doing this there's some really interesting scientists doing this around the world they're kind of perhaps too much associated with the scam so uh, and and so they're, they're using molecules that are already were already invented by biology. So there's a bit of replication built in, um, but I still think the work they're do is doing they're doing is amazing. Um, but I would like people to be a bit freer and say, let's just basically shake a load of sand in a box and wait for life to come out because that's what happened on Earth, and so that we have to understand that. Now, how would I know I've been successful? Well, because I'm not obsessing with what molecules are in life now i i would wager a vast quantity of money um i'm not very rich so it'd just be a few dollars but for mm -hmm. me be, um that the 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 solution space will be different so the the genetic material will be not rna the proteins will not be what we think they would it would the solutions will be just completely different and it might be and it'll be very feeble because that's the other thing we should be able to show um fairly robustly that even if i did make or someone did make a new life form in the lab it would be so poor that it's not going to leap out it is the the fear about making a lethal life form in the lab from scratch is um, similar to us imagining that we're going to make the terminator at boston dynamics tomorrow yeah. it's simply not you and, and i and the problem is we don't communicate that properly. I know you, you yourself, very, um, you, you explain this very well. You know, there is not the AI catastrophe coming. Mm -hmm. um, we're very far away from that. That doesn't mean we should ignore it. Same with the origin of life catastrophe. It's not coming anytime soon. We shouldn't ignore it. But we shouldn't let that fear stop us from doing those experiments. Okay, well, but this is a much, much longer discussion because there's a lot of details there. I, I would say there is potentials for catastrophic events to happen in much dumber ways within in ai space there's a lot of ways to create like uh social networks are, are creating a kind of uh, accelerated 
mm-hmm. set of events that we might not be able to control. The, the th- social network the virality in the digital space can create mass movements of ideas that can then, if times are tough, create military conflict and all those kinds of things. But that's not intel- super intelligent AI. That's an interesting at scale application of AI. And if you look at viruses, viruses are pretty dumb, uh, but at scale, their application is pretty detrimental. And so origin of life, much like all the kind of virology, you know, um, the very contentious word of gain of function research in virology, sort of like research on viruses, uh, messing with them genetically, that can create a lot of problems if not done well. So we have to be very cautious. So there's a kind of, whenever you're ultra cautious about stuff in AI or in uh, virology and biology, it uh, borders on cynicism, I would say, where it's like everything we do is going to turn out to be destructive and terrible. So I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. Okay, that's a possible solution except for the fact that somebody's going to do it. It's uh, science and technology progresses. So we have to do it in an ethical way, in a good way, considering in a transparent way, in an open way, uh, considering um, all the possible positive trajectories that could be taken and making sure as much as possible that we walk those trajectories. So yeah, I don't think Terminator is coming, but a totally unexpected version of Terminator may be around the corner. Yeah, it might be here already. Yeah, so I agree with that. And so going back to the origin of life discussion, I think that in synthetic biology right now, we have to be very careful about how we edit genomes and edit synthetic biology to do things. So that's kind of, that's where things might go wrong in the same way as, uh, you know, Twitter turning ourselves into kind of strange scale effects. Mm-hmm. I would love origin of life research or artificial life research to get to the point where we have those worries Mm -hmm. because that's why i think we're just so far away from that we are just you know right now i think there are two really important um angles there is the origin of life people researchers who are faithfully working on this and trying to make those molecules the scam molecules i talk about and then there are people on the creationist side who are saying, look, the fact you can't make these molecules and you can't make a cell means that um, evolution isn't true and all this other stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and, and, and I find that really frustrating because actually the origin of life researchers are all working in good faith, right? Yes. And, and so what I'm trying to do is give origin of life research a little bit more of, a, of, a, of an, open, an open context. And one of the things I think is important, um, I really want to make a new life form in my lifetime. I really want to prove that life is a general phenomena, a bit like gravity in the universe, because I think that's going to be really important for humanity's um, global psychological state, meaning yeah. going forward. That's beautifully, that's beautifully put. So one, it will help us understand our, ourselves. So that's useful for science. But two, it gives us a kind of hope, if not uh, an awe, at all the huge amounts of alien civilizations that are out there. If you can build life and understand just how easy it is to build life, then that's just as good, if not much better than discovering life on another planet. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's it's cheaper. It's much cheaper and much easier. 
and uh, probably much more conclusive because once you're able to create life, like you said, it's a search problem that uh, there's probably a lot of different ways to do it. So yeah. once you create the once you find the first solution, you probably have all the right methodology for finding all kinds of other solutions. Yeah, and wouldn't it be great if we could find a solution? I mean, it's probably a bit late for. I mean, I worry about climate change, but I'm not that worried about climate change. And I think one day you could think about, could we engineer a new type of life form that could basically, and I, I don't want to do this, and I don't think we should do this necessarily, but it's a good thought experiment, that would perhaps take CO2 out of the atmosphere or, or an intermediate life form. So it's not quite alive. It's almost like, a, like an add-on that we can, with a time-dependent a time add-on you could give to, say, cyanobacteria in the ocean or to maybe to wheat and say, right, we're just going to we're going to fix a bit more CO2, and we're going to work out how much we need to fix to basically save the climate, and um, and we're going to use evolutionary principles to basically get there. What worries me is that biology has had a few billion years to find a solution for CO2 fixation. It hasn't really done. It's not the solution isn't brilliant for our needs, but biology wasn't thinking about our needs. Biology was thinking about biology's needs. But I think if we can do as you say, make life in the lab then suddenly we don't need to go to everywhere and conclusively prove it. I think we make life in the lab. We look at the extent of life in the solar system. How far did Earth life get? Probably we were all Martians. Probably life got going on Mars, the chemistry on Mars, seeded Earth. That might have been a legitimate way to kind of truncate the search space. Mm -hmm. But in the outer solar system, we might have completely different life forms uh, on Enceladus, on Europa, um, and, and Titan. And that would be a cool thing because... Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Did you just say that you think, in terms of likelihood, life started on Mars? Like, uh, statistically speaking, life started on Mars and seeded Earth? It could be possible because life was like so Mars was habitable uh, for the type of life that we have right now, type of chemistry before Earth. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that Mars got searching, doing chemistry, mm -hmm. like. And so it started way before. Yeah. And so they had a few more replicators and some other stuff. And if, if those replicators got ejected from Mars and landed on Earth, and Earth would be like, I don't Thanks. need to start again. Right. <laughs> Thanks for that. And then it just carries on. So I, I'm not going, I think there is, we will find evidence of life on Mars, either life we put there by mistake, <laughs> contamination, right. or actually life, the, the earliest remnants of life. Um, and that would be really exciting. It's a really good reason to go there. But I think it's more unlikely because of the gravitational situation in the solar system. If we find life in the outer solar system, Titan and all that, it, that would be its own thing. Exactly. Wow, that would be so cool. If uh, we go to Mars and we find life that looks a hell of a lot similar to Earth life, yeah. and then we go to uh, Titan and all those weird moons with the ices and the volcanoes and all that kind of stuff, and then we find there something that looks, I don't know, way weirder yeah some other some non-rna type of or we might situation find almost life like in the prebiotic chemical space and i think there are four types of exoplanets we can go look for right because when jwst goes up and touch wood it goes up and everything's fine we'll be, when we look at a star we'll know statistically most stars have planets around them what type of planet are they are they going to be dead mm -hmm. are they going to be just a prebiotic origin of life coming so are they going to be technological and, you know, so with intelligence on them, and will they will they have died? So, so you know, uh, from you know, had life on them, but those not. are the four states of the four. Oh. And so, and suddenly, it's a bit like I want to classify planets the way we classify stars. Yeah, 
And I think that, in terms of their, rather than having this, oh, we've found we found methane. There's evidence of life. We found oxygen. That's the evidence of life. We yeah. found whatever mar molecule marker, um, and start to then st frame things a little bit more. But, As those four states. Yeah. Which, by the way, you're just saying four, but there could be a, um, before the dead. There could be other states that we humans can't even conceive yeah, of. Yeah, pre just prebiotic, almost alive. You know, got the possibility to come alive. I think, um, but there could be a post-technological, like whatever we think of as technology. There could be a, 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 a like pre-conscious, like where we all meld into one super intelligent conscious or some weird thing that sure. naturally happens over time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that um, all bets the are metaverse. Off on that. Yeah, we are. Face. We we join into a virtual metaverse and and start creating, which is kind of an interesting idea. Almost arbitrary uh, number of copies of each other, much more quickly to where we can mess with different ideas in mind. Like I can create a thousand copies of Lex, uh, like every possible version of Lex, and then just see like, and then I just have them like argue with each other and like until like in the space of ideas and see who wins out. How how could that possibly go wrong? But anyway, but I, I, the, there's uh especially in this digital space where you could start exploring with AIs mixed in, you could start engineering arbitrary intelligences. You can start playing in the space of ideas, which might move us into a world that looks very different than a biological world. Like mm -hmm. our current world, the technology is still very much tied to our biology. It's we, we might move past that. Completely oh, definitely, we definitely place. will. Because that could be another phase then. Sure. Because then you. But yeah. I did say technological, so I think I think I agree with you. I think yeah. so. You can have let's let's get this right. So, um, dead world, no prospect of alive, um, prebiotic world, life emerging, living, and technological. And you probably were, and the dead one, you probably won't be able to tell between the dead never been alive and the dead one. Maybe got some artifacts, and so maybe there's five. There's probably not more than five. Um, and I think the technological one. Could allow could have life on it still, but it might just have exceeded. Because uh, you know, one way that life might survive on Earth is if we can work out how to deal with the the coming, the real climate change that comes when the sun expands. <laughs> there might be a way to survive that, you know. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I think that we need to start thinking statistically when it comes to looking for life in the universe. Let me ask you then, sort of uh, statistically. How many alien civilizations are out there in those four phases that you're talking about? When you look up to the stars and you're sipping on some wine and um, talking to other people with British accents about something intelligent, intellectual, I'm sure. Uh, do you think there's uh, a lot of alien civilizations looking back at us and wondering the same? My romantic view of the universe is really um, taking loans from my logical self. So what I'm saying is I have no doubt, I have no idea. But having said that, there is no reason to suppose that life is as hard as we first thought it was. And so if we just take Earth as a marker, and if I think that life is a much more general phenomena than just our biology, then I think the, the universe is full of life. And the, Fermi, the reason for the Fermi paradox is not that um, they're not out there. It's just that we can't interact with the other life forms because they're so different. And I'm not saying that they're necessarily like as depicted in Arrival or other, you know. Um, I'm just saying that perhaps 
there are very few universal facts in the universe, and that and maybe um, that is not. It's quite the te our technologies are quite divergent. And so I think that it's very hard to know how we're going to interact with alien life. You think there's a lot of kinds of life that's possible. I, I guess that was the intuition yeah. you provided that uh, the way biology itself, but even this particular kind of biology that we have on Earth uh, is, is something that uh, is just one sample of a nearly infinite number of other possible mm -hmm. complex autonomous self-replicating type of things that could yeah. be possible. And so we're almost unable to see the alternative uh, versions of us. Huh. I mean, um, we'll still be able to detect them. We'll still be able to interact with them. We'll still be able to, like, which, uh, what's exactly is lost in translation? Why can't we, why can't we see them? Why can't we talk to them? Because I, I too have a sense <laughs> you put it way more poetically, but it seems both statistically and uh, sort of romantically, it feels like the universe should be teeming with life, like super intelligent life. And, and uh, I, I just, I, I sit there and the Fermi paradox is very, it's felt very distinctly by me when I look up at the stars because it's like, it, it's uh, the same way I feel when I'm driving through New Jersey and listening to Bruce Springsteen and feel quite sad. Uh, it's like Louis C.K. talks about pulling off to the side of the road and just uh, weeping a little bit. I'm almost like wondering like, hey, why why aren't you talking to us? You know, it feels lonely. It feels lonely because it feels like they're out there. I think that there are a number of answers to that. I think the Fermi paradox is is perhaps based on the, the assumption that there's... That, if life did emerge in the universe, it would be similar to our life, and there's only one solution. Um, and I think that what we've got to start to do is go out and look for selection detection, rather than an evolution detection, rather than life detection. Um, and I and I think that once we start to do that, we might start to see really interesting things. Um, and we haven't been doing this for very long. Um, and we are living in an expanding universe, so that makes the problem a little bit harder. Uh, <laughs> Everybody's always leaving. Um, but I'm, I'm distance-wise. I'm, I'm very optimistic that we will. Well, I don't know. There are two movies that came out in the same within six months of one another: Ad Astra and Cosmos. Ad Astra, the very expensive blockbuster, you know, with Brad Pitt in it, and um, saying there is no life, and it's all, you know, we've got a life on Earth is more precious than Cosmos, which is a UK production, which basically aliens came and visited Earth one day, and they were discovered in the UK, right? It was quite, it's a, it's a fun film, um, and but I really loved those two films, and I'm, I, I, and at the same time, those films, at the time those films were coming out, I was working on a paper, um, a life detection paper, and I found. It was so hard to publish this paper, and it was almost as depressed. I got so depressed trying to get this science out there that I felt the depression of uh, the the film in Ad Astra, like life is there's no no life elsewhere in the universe. And but I but I'm incredibly optimistic that I think we will find life in the universe, firm evidence of life, and it will have to start on Earth, making life on Earth and surprising us. We have to surprise ourselves and make non-biological life on Earth. And then people say, well, 
you you made this life on earth therefore it's you're part of the causal chain of that and that might be true but if i can show how i i'm able to do it with uh, very little cheating or very little information inputs just creating like a, a a model planet some description and watching it watching life emerge then i think that we will be even to to persuade even the hardest critic that that, that it's it's possible now with regards to the fermi paradox i think that we might crush that with the JWST. It's basically, if I recall correctly, the mirror is about 10 times the size of the Hubble, that we're going to be able to do spectroscopy, um, look at colors of exoplanets, I think. Not brilliantly, but we'll be able to start to classify them. And we'll start to get a real feel for what's going on in the universe on these exoplanets. Because it's only in the last few decades, I think, maybe even last decade, that we even... Um, um, came to recognize that exoplanets even are common. Mm-hmm. And I think that that gives us a lot of optimism that life is um, going to be out there. But I think we have to start framing, um, th- we have to start preparing the fact that biology is only one solution. I can tell you with confidence that biology on Earth does not exist anywhere else in the universe. We are absolutely unique. Well, okay, I love the confidence, but uh, where does the, that confidence come from? You know, chemistry, uh, like how many options does chemistry really have? Many, that's the point. And the thing is, this is where the origin of life scam comes in, uh, is that people don't quite count, they don't count the numbers. So if biology, as you find on Earth, is common everywhere, then there's something really weird going on. That basically, written in the quantum mechanics, there's some kind of, these bonds must form over these bonds, and this catalyst must form over this catalyst, when they're all quite equal. Mm-hmm. Life is contingent. The, the origin of life on Earth was contingent upon the chemistry available at the origin of life on Earth. So that means, if we want to find other life-like, other Earth-like worlds, we look for the same kind of rocky world. We might look in the same zone as as, as Earth, and we might expect reasonably to find biological-like stuff going on. That would be a reasonable hypothesis, but it won't be the same. It can't be. It's like saying, I, I don't believe in magic. That's why I, I'm sure. I just don't believe in magic. I believe in statistics, and I can do experiments. And, and so I won't get the same, exactly the same sequence of events. I'll get something different. And so there is TikTok elsewhere in the universe, but it's not the same as our TikTok, right? That's that's what I mean. Which aspect same. of it is not the same? Well, I just think it, you you it, the so what is TikTok? TikTok is a is a, a social media where people upload videos, right, of silly videos. So I guess there might be. Well, there's uh, humor. There's attention. There's yeah. uh, ability to process. There's ability for intelligent organisms to collaborate on ideas and find humor in ideas and play with those ideas, make them viral, mm-hmm. memes. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Humor seems to be kind of fundamental to the human experience. And I think that um, that's a really interesting question we can ask. Is humor a fundamental thing in the universe? I think maybe it will be, right? In terms of, if you think about in a game theoretic sense, humor, uh, the emergence of humor serves a, a, a role in our game engine. And so if selection is fundamental in the universe, and so is humor. <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I actually don't know exactly what uh, role humor serves. Maybe it's like, uh, uh, from a chemical perspective, it's uh, like a catalyst for, uh, I guess it's of several purposes. One is the catalyst for spreading ideas on the internet. That's modern humor. But humor is also a good way to deal 
with uh, the difficulty of life. <laughs> it's a kind of valve, release valve for suffering. Like throughout human history, life has been really hard. And for the people that I've known in my life who've lived through some really difficult things, uh, humor is part of how they deal with that. Yeah. It's usually dark humor, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't know exactly sort of the, what what's the more mathematically general way to formulate what the hell is humor, <laughs> what humor <laughs> does it serve? But I, I still, we're kind of joking here, but it's uh, an, a counterintuitive idea to me to think that uh, life elsewhere in the universe is very different than life on earth. And also like all of each instantiation of life is likely very different from each other. Yeah. Like the, maybe there's a few clusters of similar like life, but uh, it's much more likely is what you're saying. To me, it's a kind of novel thought. I'm not sure what to do with it, but you're saying that there's a, uh, it's more common to be a weird outcast in the full spectrum of life than it is to be in some usual cluster. So every instantiation of a kind of chemistry that results in complexity that's autonomous and self-replicating, however the hell you define life, that is going to be very different every time. I don't know. I It feels like a selection is a fundamental kind of directed force in the universe. Won't selection result in a, in a few pockets of interesting complexities. I mean, it, yeah. I, if we ran Earth over again, over and over and over, you're saying it's going to come up with, there's not going to be elephants every time? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think, uh, and I think that there will be similarities. And I think we know, we don't know enough about how selection is um, globally works. Um, but it might be, might be that the, the elephant um, the emergence of elephants was wired into the history of Earth in some way, like the gravitational force, how evolution was going, the Cambrian explosions, blah, 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 the emergence of mammals. But I, I just don't know enough about con the contingency, right, the variability. All I do know is you count the number of bits of information required to make an element, uh, uh, sorry, an elephant, and and um, think about the causal chain that provide the, the lineage of ele elephants going all the way back to Luca, there's a huge scope for divergence. Yeah, but just like you said, with chemistry and selection, the the things that result in self-replicating chemistry and self-replicating organisms, uh, those are extremely unlikely, as you're saying. Uh, but once they're successful, they multiply. So, like, I, I just it, it might be a tiny subset of all of all things that are possible in the universe, chemically speaking, it might be a very tiny subset is actually successful at creating elephants or, or uh, elephant-like uh, or slash human-like creatures. Well, there's two different questions. The first one, if we were to reset Earth and to start again. At would, the different phases, sorry to keep interrupting. Yeah, no, if we restart Earth and start again, say we could go back, back to the beginning and do the experiment or have a number of Earths, um, how similar would biology be? I would say that there would be, there would be broad similarities but um, but the emergence of mammals is not a given unless we're going to you know throw an asteroid at each planet each time and, and go, try and and try and faithfully reproduce what happened. Then there's the other the other thing about when you go to another Earth-like planet elsewhere, maybe there's a different ratio, particular elements. Maybe there's uh, the bomb the bombardment at the beginning of the planet was quicker 
or longer than Earth. And and I just don't have enough information there. What I do know is that um, the the complexity of the story of life on Earth gives us lots of scope for variation. And I just don't think it's a reasonable mathematical assumption to think that they will, that, that, that life on Earth that happened again would be the same as what we have now. Okay, but you've also extended that to say that we might, that as an explanation from the, for the Fermi paradox, that uh, that means we're not able to interact with them. Or that means, th that's an explanation for why we haven't at scale heard from aliens is, um, well, right now, they're different than us. We've only been looking for, say, 70, 80 years. So I think that we, the reason we have not found aliens yet is that we haven't worked out what life is. No, but the aliens have worked that out, surely. Uh, I mean, statistically speaking, they, they must be, there must be a large number of aliens that are way ahead of us on this whole life question. Unless there's something about this stage of uh, intellectual evolution that often quickly results in nuclear war and destroys itself. Like the, there, there's something in this process that eventually, I don't know, crystallizes the complexity and it stops, either dies or stops developing. But most likely they they already figured it out. And why aren't they contacting us? As a some some grad student somewhere well, wants to study a new a new green planet. Maybe maybe they have. I mean maybe I mean I don't I mean I don't have a coherent answer to your question, other than to say that if there are other aliens out there like and they're far more advanced, they might be in contact with each other, and they might also um, we might be at a point where what I'm saying quite critically is it takes two to talk, right? Yeah. So the aliens might be there, but if we are, if we don't have the ability to recognize them and talk to them, then the aliens aren't going to want to talk to us. And I think that's a critical point. That probably, um, if if that is a if that's a filter, there needs to be an ability for one to communicate with the other, and we need to know what, what life is before we do that. So we haven't qualified to even join the club to have a talk. Well, I think they still want to teach us how to talk, right? But my my worry is that, uh, or I I think they would want to teach us how to talk like you do when you meet it, uh, like. When you even meet, I, I was going to say child, but that's a human species. I, I mean, like uh, ant. You want to try to communicate with them through whatever devices you can, given given what an ant is like. I just I worry mostly about that humans are just too close-minded or don't have the right tools. No, I'm going to push back on this quite significantly. I would say because we don't understand what life is. And because we don't understand how life emerged in the universe, we don't understand the physics that gave rise to life yet. And we, that means our description, fundamental description, I'm way out of my pay grade, even further out there. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but I'll say it anyway, because I think it's and a you fun- You don't get paid much anyway, So as you said earlier. So, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I would say that we, because we don't understand the universe yet, we do not understand how the universe spat out life. And we don't know what life is. And in, I think that until we understand that, it is going to limit our ability to even, um, we don't qualify to talk to the aliens. So I'm going to say that the, 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 they might be there, but we just, I'm not going to say that I believe in interdimensional aliens being present. In yeah, but room. I think you're just being self-critical, uh, like we don't qualify. I think, I think the fact that we don't qualify qualifies us. We're interesting, we're interesting in our innocence. No, I'm saying that 
because we don't understand ca causal chains and the way that information is propagated in the universe, mm -hmm. and we don't understand what replication is yet, and we don't understand um, how life emerged, I think that we would not recognize aliens. And they, and if if someone doesn't recognize you, um, you wouldn't go and talk to it. You don't go and talk to ants. You don't go and talk to birds, or maybe some birds you do, right? Because you can. There's just enough cognition. So I'm saying because we don't have enough, cogn our cognitive abilities are not yet where they need to be, we probably haven't been communicating with them. So you don't agree with the uh, dating strategy of playing hard to get? Because us humans, we've, that within, seems to attract us. Within a, within a species, that's fine. But I think okay. we don't have any actually abstraction. No, I, I actually, I think you've in, in this talk, in this conversation, you've helped me crystallize something that I think has been troubling me for a long time with the Fermi paradox. I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure that a, a reasonable avenue is to say that you would not go and talk to your cat about calculus, right? But I would still pet it. Sure, but I'm not talking about petting a cat. The analogy is that the aliens are not going to talk to us because we, and I'm using calculus as an analogy for abstraction, mm -hmm. because we, we, we lack the um, layer, the fundamental layer of understanding what life is and what the universe is in our reality, that it's, it would be so counterproductive interacting with intelligent alien species that it would cause more angst for the uni for human race. Um, well, they don't care. Okay, they got to be self-interested, so they'll probably they more care about is it interesting for them. Maybe they, I mean, surely there's a way to 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 pet the to pet the cat in this in this analogy because um, even if we lack complete understanding, it's it must be a very frustrating experience for for other kinds of intelligence to communicate with us, still there must be a way to interact with us. Well, so, like perturb the system in interesting ways to see what these creatures do. We might actually find the answer. I mean, again, out of my pay grade in, in, in a simulation of Earth, or say, let's say a simulation where we allow an intelligent AI to emerge, right? And that, and that AI, we then give it, um, the objective is to be curious, interact with other intelligence in its universe. And then we might find the um, the parameters required for that AI to walk with. And I think you'll find if the, the AI will not talk to other AIs that don't share a, 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 the ability to abstract at the level of the AI because it's just a cat. And would you, are you going to travel 20 light but, years to go and pet a cat? So not because of the inability to do so, but because of like boredom. It's it's more interested. It will start talking to. It will spend most. It will spend a majority of its time talking to other AI systems that can at least somewhat understand. It's much more fun. It's a bit like: Do we know that plants are conscious? Well, plants aren't conscious in the way we typically think, but we don't talk to them. They could be right. Yeah, but there's a lot of people on Earth who like gardening. There's always going to be a they're not weird. Talking, they're just gardening. Okay, well, you're not romantic enough to see gardening as a way of communication between humans. And oh, plants. okay, you got me. <laughs> but there's there's ways. There's always going to be the people who are curious. Jane Goodall, who lives with the uh, with the chimps, right? Mm -hmm. There's always going to be curious, intelligent species that visit uh, the weird Earth planet and and try to interact. I mean, it's it's a uh, yeah. I, I think it's it's a super cool idea that you're expressing. I just uh, kind of have a sense. Maybe it's a hope that there's always going to be a desire to interact even with those that don't can't possibly understand the depth of what you understand. 
So I'm with you. That, look, so I want to be as positive as you that we, the aliens do exist and we will we will interact with them. What I'm trying to do is to give you a a reasonable hypothesis why we haven't yet, yeah. and, and also something to strive for to be able to do that. I mean, I, I you know, I there there is the other view that that that, that the universe is just too big and, and life is just too rare. But I want to make come up with an alternative explanation, which I think is a reasonable and not being philosophically and scientifically thought out. Which is this: this, if you can't actually communicate with the object, the person, the thing, competently, you don't even know it's there. Yeah. Then, then there's no point yet. See, I, I disagree with that, but I'm totally aligned with your hopeful vision, which is like we need to understand the origin of life. That will help us engineer life. Mm -hmm. Will help us engineer intelligent life through perhaps on the computer side through simulation mm -hmm. and explore all the ways that life emerges. And that will allow us to, I think the fundamental reason we don't see overwhelming amounts of life is I actually believe aliens, of course, these are all just kind of um, open-minded beliefs. Uh, it's, it's difficult to know for sure about any of this, but I think there's a lot of alien civilizations which are actively communicating with us and we're too dumb we don't have the right tools that's what I'm, to see it. That's what I'm saying. No, but you're, I, maybe I misinterpreted you, but you, you, I interpreted you to say they kind of tried a few times and they're like, oh God. No, no, no. I, what I'm saying is we, so this goes two ways. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. There could be inc information out there, but just put in such a way that we just don't understand it yet. Right. Uh, so sorry if I didn't make that clear. I mean, it's not just, I don't think we, I think we qualify as soon as we can decode their signal. Right, so when you say qualify, got it, got it. So you mean we're just not smart enough? The, the word qualify was throwing well, me off. Not, so we're not smart enough to do. It's like yeah. but the we need to get smarter. Yeah. But there, and there's a lot of people who believe. Let me get your opinion on this <laughs> about UFO sightings. So sightings of weird phenomena. That uh, you know, what does UFO mean? It means it's uh, a flying object. And it's not identified uh, clearly at the time of sighting. That's what UFO means. So it could be a physics phenomena. It could be ball lightning. It could be all kinds of fascinating. I was always fascinated with ball lightning as a, um, as like the fact that there could be physical phenomena in this world that are observable by the human eye. Of course, all physical phenomena generally are fascinating. That are that that really smart people can't explain. I love that. Because it's like, wait a minute, especially if you can replicate it, mm -hmm. it's like, wait a minute, how does this happen? That's like the precursor to giant discoveries in mm -hmm. chemistry and biology and physics and so on. But it sucks when those events are super rare, right? Physical, like leg ball lightning. Uh, so, so that's out there. And then, uh, of course, that phenomena could have other interpretations that don't have to do with the physics, the chemistry, the biology of Earth. It could have to do with more extraterrestrial explanations that in large part, thanks to Hollywood and movies and all those kinds of things, captivates the imaginations of millions of people. Uh, but just because it's science fiction that captivates the imagination of people doesn't mean that some of those sightings, all it takes is one. One of those sightings is actually a sign that it's, it's extraterrestrial intelligence, that it's, um, object that's not of this particular mm -hmm. world. Do you think there's a chance that that's the case? What do you make, especially the pilot sightings, what do you make of those? 
Um, so I, I agree with there's a chance. There's always a chance. Any good sci- scientist would have to, or observationist would have to, you know, I want to see if aliens exist, come, come to Earth. What I know about the universe is I think it's unlikely right now that there are aliens visiting us, but but not impossible. I think the um, releases, the dramatization that's been happening politically, saying we're going to release all this information, this you know classified information. Um, I was kind of disappointed because it was just very poor um, um, material, and right now the the you know the the ability to capture high resolution video, everybody is carrying around with them an incredible video device now and we haven't got more compelling data and so that we've just seeing grainy pictures a lot of hearsay instrument kind of malfunctions and whatnot and so i think on balance i think it's extremely unlikely but i think something really interesting is happening um and also during the pandemic, right? We've all been locked down. We all want to have, we want to, our imaginations are, you know, running riot. And I think that the, the I don't think that the the information out there has convinced me there are any, anything interesting on the UFO side. But what it has made me very interested about is how humanity is opening up its mind to ponder aliens mm-hmm. and the the mystery of our universe. And so I don't want to dissuade people from having those thoughts and say, you're stupid and look at that, it's clearly incorrect. That's not right. That's not fair. What I would say is that I lack sufficient data, replicated observations to to make me go, oh, I'm going to take this seriously. But I'm really interested by the fact that there is this um, this great deal of interest. And I think that it it drives me to maybe want to make or make an artificial life form even more and to help NASA and the Air Force and whoever go and look for things even more, because I think humanity wants to know what's out there. There's this yearning, isn't there? Yeah, but but I see, I almost, uh, depending on the day, I sometimes agree with you, but uh, w- with the thing you just said, but one of the disappointing things to me about the sightings, I still hold the belief that a non-zero number of them <laughs> Uh, is an indication of something very interesting. So I don't side with the people who say everything can be explained with like uh, sensor artifacts kind of thing. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. I didn't say that either. I would say I just don't have enough data. Right. But the thing I want to push back on is is the statement that everybody has a high definition camera. One of the disappointing things to me about like the report that the government released, but in general, just having worked with government, having worked with with people all over, uh, is how in- incompetent we are. Like if you look at the, pan- the response to the pandemic, how incompetent we are in the face of great challenges without great leadership, how incompetent we are in the face of the great mysteries before us without great leadership. And I just think it's actually, the fact that there's a lot of high definition cameras is not enough to capture the full richness of weird, of the mysterious phenomena out there, of which extraterrestrial intelligence visiting Earth could be one. I don't think we have, I don't think everybody having a a, a smartphone in their pocket is enough. I think that allows for TikTok videos. I don't think it allows for 
the capture of even interesting, relatively rare human events. That's not that common. It's rare to have be in the right moment, in the right time to be able to capture the thing. I agree. I agree. Let me let me rephrase what I think on this. I, I haven't seen enough information. I haven't really actively sought it out, I'm, I must admit. But I'm I'm with you in that I love the idea of anomaly detection in chemistry in particular, right? I want to make anomalies, sorry, or not necessarily make anomalies. I want to understand an anomaly. Let me give you yes. two from chemistry, um, which are really quite interesting. Um, phlogiston, going way back, where people said, there's this thing called phlogiston. And for ages, the alchemists got really um, this kind of, the, this the fire is the thing. Um, and that's one. And then we determined that phlogiston wasn't what we thought it is. Let's go to physics, the ether. The ether is a hard one because I think actually the ether might exist. And I'll tell you what I think the ether is later. Um, and it, and, and it, Can you explain ether? So uh, as, as the vacuum, so it's the, the light traveling through the ether in the vacuum, there is something that we call the ether that, that basically mediates the, the movement of light, mm -hmm. say. And I think that, um, and then the other one is cold fusion. Which is more of a, so a few years ago um, that that people observed that when they did some electrochemistry when they were uh, splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen that you got more energy out than you put in and people got excited to th and they thought that this was a nuclear reaction and um, and in the end it was kind of discredited because you didn't detect neutrons and all this stuff but I'm pretty sure. I'm a chemist. And I'm going telling you this on your podcast, but why not? I'm pretty sure there's interesting electrochemical phenomena that's not completely bottomed out yet, that there is something there. However, we lack the technology and the experimental design. So what I'm saying in your response about aliens is I, we, we lack the experimental design to really capture these anomalies. And we are encircling, encircling the planet with many more detection systems. We've got satellites everywhere. So there is... I do hope that we are going to discover more anomalies. And remember that the solar system isn't just static in space. It's moving through the universe. So there's just more and more chance. I'm not what with Avi Loeb, that uh, he's generating all sorts of kind of um, occult, I would say, uh, uh, with this. But, there, but I'm not against him. I think there is a finite chance, if there are aliens in the universe, that we're going to happen upon them. Because we're moving through the universe. What's the nature of the, uh, of the following that uh, Avi Loeb has? He's, that... he's doubling down more and more and more and say there are aliens, interdimensional aliens and everything else, right? He's gone from space junk accelerating out of to interdimensional stuff in a very short space of time. <laughs> I see. He's obviously bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or, or, or he wants to tap into the psyche and understand. And, he's, and, you know, he's playfully kind of trying to interact with society and his peers to say, stop saying it's not possible, and which I agree with. We shouldn't do that, but we should frame it statistically in the same way we f should frame any everything as good scientists st statistically. Yeah, good scientists. Recently, the idea of good scientists is um, I take quite skeptically. I've been listening to a lot of scientists tell me about what is good. What, what is good science? That makes me sad because you've been interviewing what I would consider a lot of really good scientists. No, a lot that's of really true. Thinkers, and but that that's exactly right. And most of the people I talk to are incredible human beings. But there's a humility that's required. Mm -hmm. Science is not um, science cannot be dogmatism. Sure, uh, I agree. I mean, authority like um, a PhD does not give you authority. 
a lifelong pursuit of a particular task does not give you authority. You're just as lost and clueless as everybody else, but you're more curious and more stubborn. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a nice quality to have. But overall, just um, using the word science and statistics can often, uh, as, as you know, kind of um, become a catalyst for dismissing uh, new ideas, out of the box ideas, uh, wild ideas, all that kind of stuff. Well, yes and no. I think that, so I'm, I like to, some people find me extremely annoying in science because I'm basically, um, I quite rude and disruptive, not in a rude, you know, some up to people and say they're ugly or stupid or anything like that. I just say, you're, you're, <laughs> you know, you're wrong. Yes. Or why do you think this? And, and something I, a gift I got given by society when I was very young, because I was in a, in the learning difficulties class at school, is I was told I was stupid, and so I know I know I'm stupid, but I always wanted to be smart, right? I always I, was, I remember going to school, going, maybe today they're going to tell me I, I'm not as stupid as I was yesterday, yeah. and it was always disappointed, always. And so when I went into academia and everyone said you're wrong, I was like, join the queue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it allowed me to walk through the, you know, the wall. So I think that people like to always imagine science is a bit like living in a Japanese house, the paper walls, and everyone sits in their paper in their room. And I annoy people because I walk straight through the wall, not be because why should why should I be a chemist and not a mathematician? Mm -hmm. Why should I be a mathematician and not computer scientist? Because if the problem requires us to to walk through those walls, um, but I'm I like walking through the walls, like. But I, as long then I have to put up, you know, I have to do good science. I have to win the people in those rooms a, across by good science, by taking their criticisms and addressing them head on. And I think we must do that. And and I think that I, I try and do that in my own way. And I I, I kind of love walking through the walls. <laughs> uh, and it it it, it gives me it, it's difficult for me personally. It's quite painful, um, but it always leads to a deeper understanding of the people I'm with, in particular, you know, the arguments I have with all sorts of interesting minds, because I want to solve the problem, or I want to understand more about why I exist. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's it, really. And I, I think we have to not dismiss science on that basis. I think we can, we can work with science. No, science is beautiful, but um, humans with egos and all those kinds of things can uh, sometimes uh, misuse good things like social justice, like all ideas we all aspire to misuse these beautiful ideas to um, to manipulate people, to all those kinds of things. And, sure. And that's, there's assholes in every uh, space and walk of life, including science. And yeah, 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 of course. And those are, those are no good, but yes, you're right. The, the scientific method has proven to be quite useful. That said, for difficult questions, for difficult, um, rare explanations for rare phenomena. You have to walk cautiously um, because the scientific method, when you totally don't understand something and it's rare and you can't replicate it, doesn't quite apply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. I agree with you. The challenge is to, is to not dismiss the anomaly because you can't replicate it. I mean, we can talk about this. This is something I realized when we were developing assembly theory. Um, um, that people think in the, the 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 track they're on is so dogmatic, but there is this thing 
that they see, but they don't see. And it takes a bit of time and you just have to keep reframing it. And my approach is to say, well, why can't this be right? You know, why, why must we accept that RNA is the only way into life? I mean, who said? Was there, you know, does RNA have a special, special uh, class of, of uh, information that's encoded in the universe? No, of course it doesn't, right? You know, RNA is not a special molecule with, in the space of all the other molecules. But it's so elegant and simple of, and it works so well for the evolutionary process that we kind of use that as an intuition to explain that sure. that must be the only way to have life. Sure. Uh, but you mentioned assembly theory. Well, first, let me pause. Bathroom break. Needed? Yeah, let's take two minutes. We took a quick break, and offline, you mentioned to me that you have a lab in your home, and then I said that you're basically Rick from Rick and Morty, which is something I've been thinking this whole conversation. <laughs> and then you say that there's a uh, glowing pickle <laughs> that you used something involving cold plasma, I believe. I don't know, but can you explain the glowing pickle situation? Uh, <laughs> 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 and is there many uh, arbitrarily many versions of you in alternate dimensions <laughs> so, okay. that you're aware of? I tried to make an electrochemical memory in at home um, using a and the only way using a pickle. The only way I could get any um, traction with it was actually by plugging it into a very high voltage alternating current and then putting in a couple of electrodes. But my kids weren't impressed. They're not impressed with anything I do, any experiments I do at home. I think it's quite funny. But you connected a pickle to some electro, I mean, you- 240 volts, yeah, AC. Yeah. And then had a couple of electrodes on it. So what happens is a pickle, um, <laughs> this is a cl classic thing you do. I mean, I shouldn't, pranks you do. You put a pickle into the mains and just leave it, run away and leave it. Mm -hmm. And what happens is it, it starts to decompose. It he heats up and then explodes because the water turns to steam mm -hmm. and it just violently explodes. But I wondered if I could cause the iron, sodium, potassium ions and the pickle to migrate. It'd been in a, in a jar, right? So it'd been in a, in a brine. That, that was, yeah, that was not my, that was not my best experiment. So I've done far better experiments in my lab at home. At that time it was a failed experiment, but you never know. It could, uh, Every experiment is a successful experiment uh, if you stick with it long enough. Well, I mean, I get I got kicked out of my own lab by my research team many years ago, and for yeah. good reason. I mean, my team is brilliant, and I used to go and just break things. So what I do do at home is I have a, a kind of electronics workshop, um, and I prototype experiments there. Then I try and then I try and suggest to my team sometimes maybe we can try this thing. And they would just say, oh, well, that's not going to work because of this. And I'd say, aha, but actually I've tried. And here's some code and here's some hardware. Can we have a go? So that I'm doing that less and less now as I get even more busy. But um, that's quite fun because they, they feel that we're in the, you know, in the experiment together. You do, in fact, brilliantly, just like Rick from Rick and Morty, uh, connect up chemistry with computation. Mm -hmm. So sort of, and when we say chemistry, we don't mean the um, simulation of chemistry, of modeling of chemistry. We mean chemistry in the physical space as well as in the digital space, which is uh, fascinating. We'll talk about that. But first, you mentioned assembly theory, so we'll stick on theory and these big ideas, I would say revolutionary ideas. This uh, intersection between mathematics and philosophy. What is assembly theory? And generally speaking, how would we recognize life if we saw it? So assembly theory is a theory 
goes back a few years now. My struggle for maybe almost 10 years when I was going to origin of life conferences and artificial life conferences where I thought that everybody was dancing around a, the problem of what life is and what it does. But I'll tell you about what assembly theory is because I think it's easier. So assembly theory literally says if you take an object, any given object, and you are able to break the object into parts very gently, so just maybe let's say take a piece of very intricate Chinese porcelain and you tap it just with a hammer, with a nail at some point, and it will fragment into many parts. And if that object is able to fragment into many, and you count those, num those parts, the different parts, so they're unsymmetrical, um, assembly theory says the, the larger the number of parts, unsymmetrical parts that object has, the more likely it is that object has been created by an evolutionary or information process, especially if that object is not one-off. You've got a, an, a, an abundance of them. And that's really important. The abundance, and I, and I, so because if you, what I'm literally saying about the abundance, if you have a one-off object and you break it into parts and it has lots of, lots of parts, you'd say, well, that's, that could be incredibly intricate and complex, but it could be just random. And I was troubled with this for years because I saw in reality that assembly theory works. But when I talked to very good computational, um, complexity computationalists, algorithmic complexity people, they said, you haven't really done this properly. You haven't thought about it. It's like, this, this is the random problem. Mm -hmm. And so um, I kept working this up because I invented assembly theory in chemistry, first of all, with molecules. And so the thought experiment was, how complex does a molecule need to be when I find it that it couldn't possibly have risen by chance probabilistically? And if I found this molecule able to detect it in enough quantities in, the, say, an object like a machine, like a mass spectrometer. So typically in a mass spectrometer, you, you weigh the molecules in electric field. You probably have to have on the order of 10,000 identical molecules to get a signal. Mm -hmm. So 10,000 identical molecules that are complex. What is the chance of them occurring by chance? Mm -hmm. Well, we can do the math. Let's take a molecule like strychnine or, um, or yeah, so strychnine is a good molecule actually to take or Viagra is a good molecule. I made jokes about Viagra because it's a complex molecule. And one of my friends said, yeah, if we find Vi Viagra on Mars in detectable quantities, we know something is up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it's a complex molecule. So what you do is you take this molecule in the mass spectrometer and you hit it with some electrons or in an electric field and it breaks apart. And if the larger than the larger the number of different parts, you know when it starts to get to a threshold. My idea was that that molecule could not be created by chance, probabilistically. So that was where assembly thought theory was born in an experiment, in a mass spec experiment. And I was thinking about this because NASA sending mass spectrometers to Mars, to Titan, is going to send them to Europa. There's going to be a nuclear-powered mass spectrometer going to Titan. This, I mean, this, this is the coolest experiment ever. They're not only sending a drone that's going to fly around Titan. It's going to be powered by a, you know, a, a nuclear slug, a nuclear battery, and it's going to have a mass spectrometer on it. Is this already launched? No, it's, going, it's, it's Dragonfly, and it's going to be launched in a few years. I think it got pushed a year because of the pandemic. So I think you, you, three or Dragonfly. four years. Dragonfly. Nuclear dragonfly is going to fly to Titan uh, and collect uh, data about the composition mm -hmm. of uh, the various chemicals on Titan. Yeah, I'm trying to convince NASA. I don't know if I'll be able to convince the dragonfly team 
um, that they should apply this approach, but they will get data, and depending on how good their mass spectrometer is. But I had this thought experiment anyway, and I did this thought experiment, and for me, it seemed to work. I, I turned the thought experiment into an algorithm in assembly theory, and I basically, assembly theory, if I take, let's just make it generic, and let's just take the word abracadabra. Mm -hmm. So can I, um, if you find the word, so if you have a book with lots of words in it, and you find abracadabra one-off, and it's a rap book that's been written by, in a random way, you know, set of monkeys in a room, and you know, yeah, had typewriters. and you're on typewriters, and you find one-off abracadabra, no big deal. But if you find lots of reoccurrences of abracadabra, well, that means something weird is going on. But let's think about the assembly number of abracadabra. So uh, abracadabra has a, you know, uh, has a, a number of letters in it. You can break it down, so you just cut the letters up. But when you actually reassemble abracadabra, the minimum number of weights of organizing those letters, so you'd have an A, a B, you know, uh, and keep going up. Um, there's just the, you can, when you cut abracadabra up into parts, you can put it together again in seven steps. So what does that mean? That means if you basically don't re, you're allowed to reuse things you make in the chain at the beginning. That's the memory of the universe, the process that makes abracadabra. Um, and because of that causal chain, you can then get to abracadabra quicker than the number of letters mm -hmm. for having to specify only in seven. So if you take that to a molecule and you cut the molecule up into parts and you can on the causal chain and you basically start with the atoms and then bonds and then you randomly add on those parts to make the A, make the B, mm -hmm. make the and, and keep going all the way up. Um, I found that literally assembly theory allows me to say how compressed a molecule is. So when there's some information in there. Um, and I realized assembly theory is, wasn't, isn't just confined to molecular space. It can apply to anything. But let me finish the molecular argument. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I, I had this theory. I, with one of, my, one of my students, we wrote an algorithm. We basically took the 20 million molecules from the database and we just calculated their assembly number. The, uh, and that's the index. Like basically, if I take a molecule and I cut it up into bonds, what is the minimum number of steps I need to take to reform that molecule mm -hmm. from atoms? So reusability of previously formed things is somehow a fundamental exactly. part. Exactly. So it's like a memory in the universe, right? I'm making lots of leaps here. Like It's kind of weird. I'm saying, right, there's a process that can form the A and the B and the C, let's say. And then that, well, there's, and because we've formed A and B before, we can use A and B again with no extra cost except mm -hmm. one unit. So that's the kind of what the chain of events. And that's how you think about memory here when you say the universe, when you talk about the universe and or life is the universe creating memory. Exactly. So we, 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 we went through chemical space and we looked at the assembly numbers and we were able to classify it. We said, okay, let's test it. Let's go. So we're able to take a whole bunch of molecules and assign an assembly index to them, okay? And it's just a, those, it's a function of the number of bonds in the molecule and how much symmetry. So literally, assembly theory is a measure of how little symmetry a molecule has. Mm -hmm. So the more asymmetry, the more information, the more weird it is, like a Jackson Pollock of some description. So I then went and did a load of experiments. And I basically took those molecules, I cut them up in the mass spec and measured the number of peaks without any knowledge of the molecule. And we found the assembly number, the, the, there was a, almost a, not quite a one-to-one -one correlation, but almost, because not all bonds are equal, they have different energies. I then did this using two other spectroscopic techniques, NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, which uses radio frequency to, to basically jangle the molecules and get a signature out. Mm -hmm. And I also used infrared, 
And infrared and NMR almost gave us a one-to-one -one correlation. So what am I saying? Saying by taking a molecule and, do, and, and doing either infrared or NMR or mass spec, I can work out how many parts there are in that molecule and then put it on a scale. And what we did in the next part of the work is um, we took molecules randomly from the environment, from outer space, from all around Earth, from the, 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 from the sea, from Antarctica, and from fossils and so on. And even NASA, and, and they because they didn't believe us, blinded some samples. And that we found that all these samples that came from biology produced molecules that had a, a very high assembly number above a threshold of about 15. Mm -hmm. So basically, all the other stuff that came from that abiotic origin was low. There was no complexity there. Mm -hmm. So we suddenly realized that on Earth, at least, there is a cutoff that natural phenomena cannot produce molecules that need more than 15 steps to make them. So I realized that this is a way to make a scale of life, a scale of technology as well. And it, literally, you could just go sniffing for molecules off Earth, on Titan, on Mars. And when you find a molecule in the mass spectrometer that gives you more than 15 parts, you'll know pretty much for sure that it had to be produced by evolution. And this allowed me to come up with a general definition of life based on assembly theory, to say that if I find an object that has a, that has a large number of parts, say an iPhone or Boeing 747, or you know any complex object, and I can find it in abundance and cut it up, um, I can tell you whether that has been produced by an informational process or not. And that's what assembly theory kind of does. But it goes a bit further. Um, I then realized that this isn't just about life, it's about causation. So actually, it tells you about where there's a causal structure. So now I can look at objects in the universe, say that again, this cup, and say, right, I'm gonna look at how many independent parts it has. So that's the assembly number. I'll then look at the abundance, how many cups, there are two on this table, maybe there's a few more you got stashed away. Mm -hmm. So assembly is a, is a function of the complexity of the object times the number of copy numbers of that object or a function of the copy number normalized. So I realized there's a new quantity in the universe. You have energy, entropy, and assembly. So assembly, the way we should think about that is uh, how much uh, reusability there is. Because yes. what reusability is like the, like, can you play devil's advocate to this? So like, could this just be a, a nice uh, tertiary signal for living organisms? Like uh, some kind of distant signal that's, yeah, this is a nice property, but it's not capturing something fundamental. Or do you think reusability is something fundamental to, to life in complex organisms? I think reusability is fundamental in the universe, not just for life and complex organisms, it's about causation. So I think assembly tells you, if you find objects, because you can do this with trajectories as well. You think about it, that in the unit, the fact there are objects in the universe on Earth, it's, my, it's weird. You think about it, we should just have a combinatorial explosion of stuff. Yeah. The fact that not everything exists is is really weird. Now yeah. then, and then there, <laughs> as, as I'm looking at two mugs and two water bottles, and uh, the things that exist are kind of uh, are similar and, and multiply. <laughs> Yeah. In copies of each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. So I would say that assembly allows you to do something that statistical mechanics 
and people looking at entropy have got stuck with yeah. for a while. So I'm making it's pretty bold. I mean, I'm writing a paper with Sarah Walker on this at the moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're realizing we don't want to get ahead of ourselves because I think that there's lots of ways where this is, you know, it's, it's a really interesting idea. It works for molecules and it appears to work for any objects produced by causation. Because you can take a motor car, you can look at the assembly of the motor car, look at a book, look at the assembly of the book. Assembly theory tells you there's a way of compressing and reusing. And so when people, I talk to information theorists, they say, oh, this is just logical depth. I say it is like logical depth, but it's experimentally measurable. They say, oh, it's a bit like Komogolorov complexity. I say, but it's computable. <laughs> and now, okay, it's not infinitely computable, gets MP hard very quickly, right? It's very hard problem when you could get, but it's a computable enough, you contractible enough to be able to tell the difference between a molecule that's been formed by the random background and by uh, causation. And, and I think that that's really interesting because until now, there's no way of measuring complexity objectively. Complexity is required algorithmic comparisons and programs and human beings to enable things. Assembly is label-free. Well, mm. not entirely. We can talk about what that means in a minute. Okay. Um, my, my brain has been uh, broken a couple times I'm here. I'm sorry I explained but it really it, badly. No, it was very well <laughs> explained. It was just fascinating and... Uh, it's, it's a, it's a. Uh, my brain is broken into pieces, and I'm trying to assemble it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so NP hard. So when you have a molecule, you're trying to figure out. Okay, if we were to reuse parts of this molecule, which parts can we reuse to uh, as an optimization problem? NP hard to figure out the minimum amount of reused components. Mm -hmm. that will create this molecule. And it becomes difficult when you start to look at a huge, huge molecules, arbitrarily large. Yeah. Because I'm also like mapping this, can I can I think about this in complexity generally, like looking at a cellular automata system and saying like, what's the, what the, can this be used as a measure of complexity for like a arbitrarily complicated system? Yeah, I, I think it can. It can. And I, I think that the question is, and what's the benefit? Because there's plenty of, um, I mean, in computer science and mathematics and in physics, people have been really seriously studying complexity for a long time. And I think there's a really interesting problems of where we coarse grain and we lose information. And all assembly theory does really, assembly theory just explains weak emergence. Mm -hmm. And and so what assembly theory says, look, going from the atoms, inter atoms that interact, those first replicators that build one another, um, assembly at the at the minimal level just tells you evidence that there's been replication mm -hmm. and selection. And I think the more selected something is, the higher the assembly. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to start to know how to look for selection in the universe. If you go to the moon, there's nothing a very high assembly on the moon except the human artifacts we've left there. Mm -hmm. So again, let's go back to the sandbox. In assembly theory says, if all the sand grains could stick together, that's the infinite combinatorial explosion in the universe. That should be the default. Mm -hmm. But we don't have that. Now let's assemble sand grains together and let's um, and do them in every possible way. So we have a, a series of minimal operations that can move the sand together. But all that doesn't exist either. Now, because we have specific memory where we say, well, we're going to put three sand grains in a line or four and make a cross or a triangle <laughs> or something unsymmetrical. And once we've made the triangle and the unsymmetrical thing, we remember that we can use it again because it's on that causal mm -hmm. chain. 
So what assembly theory allows you to do is go to the actual object that you exist, you find in space. And actually the way you get there is by disassembling it. So it's disassembly theory works by disassembling objects you have and understanding the, mm-hmm. the steps to create them. And it works for map, for, bond, for molecules beautifully because you just break bonds. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it's going to be hard. It's very difficult. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult problem to figure out how to break them apart. For molecules, it's easy. If you just keep low enough in molecular weight space, it's good enough. So it's a complete theory. When we start to think about objects, we can start to assign, we can start to think about things at different levels, different atoms. What do you assign as your atom? So in a molecule, the atom, this is really confusing because the word atom, I mean smallest breakable part. So in a molecule, the atom is the bond because <laughs> you break bonds, not atoms, right? Right. Right. right? right. So in a car, the atom might be, I don't know, a, a small amount of iron or the smallest you know, reusable part, a rivet, uh, a, a piece of plastic or something. So you've got to be really careful. In a microprocessor, the atoms might be transistors. Mm-hmm. And so... How assemb- the, the amount of assembly that something has is a function. You have to look at the, the atom level. What are you, where are your parts? What are you counting? That's one of the things you get to choose. What is, uh, at what scale is the atom? What is the minimal exact thing? I mean, there's a huge amount of trade-offs in when you approach a system and try to analyze. Like if you approach Earth, you're an alien civilization, try to study Earth. What is the atom for trying to measure the complexity of, of life? Is it, uh, are humans the atoms? I would say to start with, you just use molecules. I can say for sure, if there are molecules of sufficient complexity on Earth, then I know that life has made them. And then go further and show technology. There are molecules that exist on Earth that are not possible even by biology. Mm. You needed technology and you needed microprocessors to get there. So that's really cool. And that there's a correlation between that uh, between the, the the coolness of that and uh, assembly number, whatever yeah. the measure, what's the, what, what would you call the measure? Assembly index. Yeah, assembly so, I, index. The, the, yeah, so there are three kind of fundamental kind of labels we have. So there's the quantity of assembly mm-hmm. and the assembly, the, the, so if you have a box, let's just have a box of molecules. So I'm going to have my box. We count the number of identical molecules and then we chop each molecule up in a individual molecule class and calculate the assembly number. So basically, the, the, you then ha- have a function that sums over all the molecules for each assembly, and then you divide through. So you make it uh, divide through by the number of, of, of molecules. So that's molecules. the assembly index for the box? So that will tell you the as- amount of assembly in the box. So basically, the assembly equation we come up with is like basically the sum um, of e to the power of the assembly index for molecule i times the number of copies of the molecule i. Mm-hmm. And then you normalize. So you sum them all up and then normalize. So some boxes are going to be more assembled than others. Yeah, that's what they tell me. So if you were <laughs> to look at me as a box, so say I'm a box, uh, am I assembling my parts? In terms of like, uh, how do you know what, what's my assembly index? So I, and let, be gentle. So let's just, we'll talk about the molecules in you. So let's just take a pile of sand the same weight as you. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I would um, take you and just cut up all the molecules. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and look at the number of copies and assembly number. So in sand, let's say there's probably going to be nothing more than an assembly number of two or three, um, but there might be trillions and trillions of sand grains. Mm-hmm. In your body, there might be the assembly number is going to be higher, but there might not be as quite as many copies because the, the the molecular weight is higher. 
So, so I, you do want to average it out. You can average. You do so average you, it. I'm not. I'm not defined by the most impressive model. No, no. You're it? an average in your volume. Well, I mean, we're just working this out. But what's really cool is that you're going to have a really high assembly. The sand will have a very low assembly. Your causal power is much higher. You get to make decisions. You're alive. You're aspiring. Mm -hmm. Assembly says something about causal power in the universe, and that's not supposed to exist. Because yeah. physicists don't accept that causation exists at the bottom. So I understand at the chemical level why the assembly is cause, causation. Why is it causation? Because it's capturing the memory. Exactly. It's ca ca capturing memory, but there's not an action to it. So um, I'm trying to see how it leads to life. Well, it's what life does. So I think it's we, we don't know... So yeah, yeah, that's a good question. What is life versus what does life do? Yeah, so that's this is the definition of life, the only definition we need. That's right? the assembly index. It's basically that life is able to create objects in abundance that are that are so complex, the assembly number is so high they can't possibly form by in a random in an environment where there's just random interactions. Yeah. So the so suddenly you can put life on a scale. Um, is a, and then life doesn't exist, actually, in that kind. It's just how, how evolved you are. And the, you as an object, because you have incredible causal power, you could go and, you can go and, you know, um, launch rockets or build cars or create drugs or, you know, it, it, you can do so many things. You can build stuff, build more artifacts that show that you have had causal power and that causal power was... There's kind of a lineage. Mm -hmm. And I think that over time, I've been realizing that, that physics as a discipline has a number of problems associated with it. Well, me as a chemist, it's kind of interesting that assembly theory, and I'm really, you know, I want to maintain some, some credibility in the physicist science, but I have to push them because they, physics is a really good discipline. It's, it's reduced the number. Physics is about reducing the belief system. But they're down to some things in their belief system, yeah. which is kind of really makes me kind of grumpy. Number one is requiring order at the beginning of the universe magically. We don't need that. The second is the second law. Well, we don't actually need that. <laughs> and I, This is blasphemous. I, well, in a minute, I'll, I'll recover my career in a second. Mm -hmm. Although I think the, good, the only good thing about being the Regis chair means I think there has to be an act of parliament to fire me. Yeah. <laughs> but you, so, can always, uh, you can always go to Lee's Twitter and protest. <laughs> and I think the third thing is that, so we've got, you know, we've got the, um, the order at the beginning. Yeah. Um, second law. Uh, the second law and the fact that causation is emergent, right? And that time is emergent. John Carroll just turned off this program. <laughs> I think he believes that it's emergent. So, so causation is not emergent. Uh, That's clearly incorrect. Hmm. Because we wouldn't exist otherwise. So, time, so physicists have kind of got confused about time. Time is a real thing. Well, I mean, so look, I'm very happy with the current description of the universe as physics give me because I can do a lot of stuff, right? I can go to the moon with Newtonian physics, I think, and I can understand um, the, the orbit of Mercury with relativity. And, so we, and I can build transistors with quantum mechanics, right? And I can do all this stuff. Yeah. So I'm not saying the physics is wrong. I'm just saying if we say that time is fundamental, i.e. time is non-negotiable, there's a global clock, 
I don't need a, I don't need to require that there's order been magically made in the past because that asymmetry is built into the way the universe is. So if time's fundamental, I mean, you you've been referring to as kind of an interesting formulation of that is memory. Yeah. So uh time time is hard to like put a finger on like what what the hell are we talking about? Well, it's just a direction, but memory is a construction, especially when you have like, think about these local pockets of complexity, these um, non-zero assembly index entities that's being constructed and they remember. Never forget molecules. <laughs> but remember, the thing is I invented assembly theory. Um, I'll tell you I invented it. When I was a kid, I mean, I, the thing is, I, I keep making fun of myself to my research group. I've only ever had one idea. I keep exploring that idea yeah. over the 40 years or so since I had that idea. I used to Well, aren't you the idea that the universe had? So it's very kind of hierarchical. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, that's, very, oh, that's very poetic. Yeah. Um, so I think I came up with assembly theory with the following idea. When I was a kid, I was obsessed about survival kits. What is the minimum stuff I would need to basically replicate my reality. And I love computers and I love technology or what technology was gonna become. So I imagined that I would have basically this really big truck full of stuff. And I thought, well, can I delete some of that stuff out? Can I have a blueprint? And then, and in the end, I kept making this, making it smaller, got to maybe half a truck and then to a suitcase. And then went, okay, well, screw it. I wanna, I wanna carry my entire technology in my pocket. Hmm. How do I do it? And I'm not like a launch into a Steve Jobian, you know, um, iPlayer. I came up with a Matchbox survival kit. In that Matchbox survival kit, I would have the minimum stuff that would allow me to interact the environment to build my shelter, to build a fishing rod, mm -hmm. to build a water purification system. And it's kind of like, so what did I use in my box to assemble in the environment, to assemble, to assemble, to assemble? Uh, and and I realized I could make a causal chain in my survival kit. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's probably why I've been obsessed with assembly theory for so long. And I was just pre-configured to find it somewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when I saw it in molecules, I, I, I realized that the causal structure that we say emerges and the physics kind of gets really stuck because they're saying that time, you can go backwards in time. I mean, how do we like, let physicists get away with the notion that we can go back in time and meet ourselves? I mean, that, that, that's clearly a very hard thing to let, our, we physicists would not let other sciences get away with th that kind of heresy, right? So why are physicists allowed to get away with it? Let's, let's So first of all, to push back, to play devil's advocate, you are clearly married to the idea of memory. You see in this, again, Rick from Rick and Morty way, you see, you you have these deep dreams of the universe that is writing the story through its memories, through these chemical compounds that are just building on top of each other. And and then they, they find useful components that can reuse. And then the, the reused components uh, create systems that themselves are then reused mm -hmm. and all in this way construct things. But when you think of that as memory, it seems like quite sad that you can walk that back. But at the same time, it feels like that memory, you can walk in both directions on that memory in, in terms of time. You could walk in both directions, but I don't I don't think that, that makes any sense because um, the problem that I have with time being reversible is that um 
I mean, I'm I'm just a you know I'm a dumb experimental chemist, right? So I love burning stuff, yeah. you know, burning stuff and building stuff. But when I think of reversible phenomena, I imagine in my head, I have to actually manufacture some time. I have to, I have to borrow time from the universe to do that. I can't. When anyone says, "Let's imagine that we can go back in time or reversibility," you can't do that. You can't step out of time. Time is non-negotiable. It's happening. No, but see, you're assuming that time is fundamental, which most of us do when we go day to day. But it takes well, a leap of wild imagination to think that time is emergent. Um, no, time is not emergent. Yeah, I mean, this is an argument we can have, but I believe I can come up with an experiment. An experiment that proves that time cannot possibly be emergent? An experiment that shows how assembly theory kind of is the way that the universe produces selection and that selection gives rise to life. And also to say, well, hang on, we could allow ourselves to have a theory that requires us to have these these statements to be possible. Mm -hmm. Like we need we need to have order in the past, or we can have use the past hypothesis, um, which is order in the past, but <laughs> as well. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. And we have to have an arrow of time. We have to require that entropy increases and we have to say and then we can say look the universe is completely closed and there's no novelty or that novelty is predetermined what i'm saying is very very important that time is fundamental which means if you think about it the universe becomes more and more novel each step it generates as more states and next step than it was before so that means bigger search so what i'm saying is that the universe wasn't capable of consciousness at day one <laughs> actually because it didn't have enough states but, but today the universe is comp so it's like how? All right, all right. Hold on a second. Now we've pissed off the panpsychists too. Okay. No, this is brilliant. Sorry, I'm. I'm <laughs> part of me is just you know joking, having fun with this thing, but because uh, you're saying a lot of brilliant stuff, and I'm trying to slow it down before my brain explodes. So because I want to break break apart some of the, the fascinating things you're saying. So novelty, novelty is increasing in the universe because the number of states is increasing. What do you mean by states? So I think the physicists almost got everything right. I can't, I can't fault them at all. I just think there's a little bit of dogma. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. I'm, I'm very happy to be entirely wrong on this, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not right on many things at all. Mm -hmm. but, but if I can make less assumptions about the universe with this, then potentially that's a more powerful way of looking at things. If you think of time as fundamental, yeah. you can make less assumptions overall. Exactly. Okay. The time is fundamental. I don't need to add on a magical second law because the second law comes out of the fact the universe is actually there's more states available. I mean, we might even be able to do weird things like dark energy in the universe might actually just be time, right? Yeah, but then you have to still have to explain why time is fundamental because I can give you one explanation that's simpler than time and say God. You know, like just because it's simple doesn't mean it's. But, it's, but, but okay, you still have to explain God, and you still have to explain time. Like, why is it fundamental? So let's just say existence is default, which means time is the default. So look, wait, wait, of, how did you go from the existence to the well, default? Well, the time is the default. Well, look, well, we exist, right? So let's just we'll just just take we'll be very. We're yet to talk about what exist means. All right, let's let's go all the way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think it's very poetic and beautiful what you're weaving into this. I, I don't think this conversation is even about the assembly, uh, which is fascinating, and we'll keep mentioning the assembly index and this idea that I don't think is necessarily connected to time. 
Oh, I think it is deeply connected. I, like, can't, like, I can't explain it yet. So, so you don't think everything you've said about assembly theory and assembly index can still be correct, even if time is emergent? So, yeah, right now, assembly theory appears to work. I appear to be able to measure objects of high assembly in a mass spectrometer and look at their abundance and, you know, all that's fine, right? It's a, it's a nice, if nothing else, it's a nice way of looking at how molecules can compress things. Mm -hmm. um, now, am I saying that a time has to be fundamental, not emergent for assembly theory to work? No. I'm, I think I'm saying that the universe... Um, it appears that the universe has many different ways of using time. You could have three different types of time. You could just have time that's the way I would think of it. If you want, if you want to hold on to emergent time, I think that's fine. Let's do that for a second. Hold on to emergent time, and the universe is just doing its thing. Then assembly time only exists when the universe starts to write memories through bonds. So let's just say there's rocks running around. You know, there's there's when when the bond happens and selection starts suddenly. There are there, the universe is remembering cause in, in the past, and those structures will have effects in the future. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, a new type of time emerges at that point, which has a, a direction. And I think Sean Carroll at that, this point might even turn the podcast back on and go, "Okay, I can yeah. deal with that. That's yeah. fine." Yeah. But I'm just basically trying to condense the conversation and say, "Hey, let's just have time fundamental and see how that screws with people's minds." Why yeah, you're triggering people by saying fundamental? Why not? Well, you just well, say like, I, let's say. Why am I look? I'm walking through the wall. Why? Why? Why should I grow up in a world where time? time I don't go back in time. I don't meet. I don't meet myself in the past. There are no one. There are no aliens coming from the future, right? Yeah, but you know, it's but, just but like here, oh, no, no. But that's not. No, 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 no. Hold on a second. That's like saying we're talking about biology or, or like uh, evolutionary psychology, and you're saying, okay, let's just assume that. That clothing is fundamental. People wearing clothes is fundamental. It's like, no, 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 no. wait a minute. <laughs> okay. You can't, like, I think you're getting in a lot of trouble if you assume time is fundamental. Why? Give me one reason why I'm getting into trouble with time being fundamental. Because you might not understand the origins of this memory that might be deeper. Okay. Like that, this memory, that could be a thing that's explaining the construction of these uh, higher complexities better than just saying it's a uh, it's a search. It's it's chemicals doing a search for uh, reusable uh, reusable structures that they can like then uh, use as bricks to build a house. Okay, so I accept that. So let's 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 go back a second because it's a kind of it, it is. I wanted to drop the time bomb at this part. Mm -hmm. Because I think we can carry on discussing it for many, 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 many days, many Excellent. months. Uh -huh. um, but I'm happy to accept that it might be wrong. But what I would like to do is imagine a universe where time is fundamental and time is emergent and ask, let's just then talk about causation. Because physicists require that causation, so this is where I'm going to go, causation emerges and it doesn't exist at the micro scale. Well, that clearly is wrong. Because if causation has to emerge at the macro scale, life cannot emerge. So how does life emerge? Life requires molecules to bump into each other, produce replicators. Those replicators need to produce polymers. There needs to be cause and effect at the molecular level. There needs to be an agurdic, non-agurdic to an agurdic transition right? at some point. And, and those replicators have consequence, material consequence in the universe. Physicists just say, oh, you know what? I'm going to have a bunch of particles in a box. 
I'm going to I'm going to think about it in a, in a Newtonian way, in a quantum way, and I'll add on an arrow time, so I can label things, and causation will happen magically later. Well, how? Explain causation. And they can't. The only way I can reconcile causation is having a fundamental time, because this allows me to have a deterministic universe that is creates novelty. And we and there's so many there's so many things to unpack here, but. Let's go back to the point. You said, does can assembly theory work with emergent time? Sure, it can, but it doesn't give me a deep satisfaction about how causation and assembly gives rise to these objects that, go, that move through time and space. And again, what am I saying to bring it back? I can say, without fear, you know, take this water bottle and look at this water bottle and look at the features on it. There's writing. You've got a load of them. Um, I know that Causal structures gave rise to this. In fact, I'm not looking at just one water bottle here. I'm looking at every water bottle that's ever been conceived of by humanity. Mm -hmm. This here is a special object. In fact, Leibniz knew this. You know, Leibniz, um, it was at the same time of Newton, he kind of got stuck. I think Leibniz actually invented assembly theory. He gave soul. The soul that you see in objects wasn't the mystical soul. It is assembly. It is a fact there's been a history of objects related. And without without the object in the past, this object wouldn't exist. There is a lineage and there is conserved structures, causal structures have given rise to those. Fair enough. And uh, you're saying it's just a simpler view if time is fundamental. And it, and it shakes the physicist's cage a bit, right? Because mm -hmm. I say, but I think that... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, just, I just enjoy the fact that physicists are in cages. This is I good. think that, this I mean, I, I would say that, you know, Lee Smolin, I don't want to speak for Lee. I'm, I'm talking to Lee about this. I think Lee also is in agreement that time is, has to be fundamental. But I think he goes further. You know, even in space, I don't think you can go back to the same place in space. I've been to Austin a few times now. This is my... I think third time I've been to Austin. Mm -hmm. Is Austin in the same place? No. The solar system is moving through space. I'm not back in the same space. Locally, I am. Every yeah. event in the universe is unique. In space. And time. And time. Doesn't mean we can't go back, though. I, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, let's just, you know, rest this conversation, which was a beautiful. Uh, with a quote from the Rolling Stones that uh, you can't always get what you want, which is you want time to be fundamental, but if you try, you'll get what you need, which is assembly theory. Okay, let me ask you about, continue talking about complexity and uh, to clarify with this beautiful theory of yours that you're developing and I'm sure will continue developing both in the lab and in theory. Um, yeah, it's can't be said enough. Just the ideas you're playing with it in your head are just, and we've been talking about it, are just beautiful. So if we talk about complexity a little bit more generally, maybe in an admiring romantic way, how does complexity emerge from simple rules? The why, the how, okay, the nice algorithm of assembly is there. I, w I would say that the problem I have right now is, I mean, you're right We can about time as well. The problem is I have this hammer called assembly <laughs> and yeah. everything I see is a nail. So now let's, let's just apply it to all sorts of things. We take the Bernard instability. The Bernard instability is you have oil. Uh, if, if you heat up oil, let's say on a frying pan. When you get convection, you get honeycomb patterns. Mm -hmm. Take the formation of snowflakes. 
right? Um, take the take the emergence of a of a, a tropical storm or the storm on Jupiter. When people say, let's talk about complexity in general, what they're saying is, let's take this collection of objects that are correlated in some way and try and work out how many moving parts there are, how this got, how this exists. So what people have been doing for a very long time is taking complexity and counting what they've lost, mm -hmm. calculating the entropy. And the reason why I'm pushing very hard on assembly is entropy tells you how much you've lost. It doesn't tell you the microstates are gone. But if you embrace the go the bottom up with assembly, those states, and you 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 then understand the causal chain that gives rise to the emergence. So what I think assembly will help us do is understand weak emergence at the very least, and maybe allow us to crack open complexity in a new way. And and I've been fascinated with complexity theory for many years. I mean, when as, as soon as I could you know, I learned of the Mandelbrot set and I could write, write, you know, just type it up in my computer and run it and just show it and see it ex kind of unfold. It was just this, this kind of, this mathematical reality that existed in front of me, I just found incredible. But then I realized that actually we were cheating. We're putting in the boundary conditions all the time. We're putting in information. And so when people talk to me about the complexity of things, I say, but relative what? How do you measure them? So my attempt, my small attempt, um, naive attempt, because there's many greater minds than mine on the planet right now thinking about this properly, and you've had some of them on the podcast, right? They're just absolutely fantastic. Um, but I'm wondering if we might be able to reformat the way we would explore com com algorithmic complexity using assembly. What's the minimum number of constraints we need in our system for this to unfold. So whether it's like, you know, if you take some particles and put them in a box, at a certain box size, you get quasi-crystallinity coming out, right? But that that emergence, it's not magic. It must come from the boundary conditions you put in. So all I'm saying is a lot of the complexity that we see is a direct read of the constraints we put in, but we just don't understand. So as I said earlier to the poor origin of life chemists, you know, origin of life is a scam. I would say lots of complexity calculation theory is a bit of a scam because we put the constraints in, but we don't count them correctly. And I'm wondering if... Oh, I, I, you're thinking and starting to drop as, as, as assembly theory, uh, assembly index is a way to count the constraints. Yes, that's it. That's all it is. So assembly theory doesn't do doesn't lower any of the importance of complexity theory, but it allows us to go across domains and start to compare things Compare the complexity of a molecule, of a microprocessor, of the text you're writing, mm -hmm. of, the, of the music you may compose. You've tweeted, quote, assembly theory explains why Nietzsche understood we had limited freedom rather than radical freedom. So we've applied assembly theory to cellular automata in life and chemistry. Um, what does Nietzsche have to do with uh, assembly theory? Oh, that gets me into free will and everything. Uh so let me say that again. Assembly theory explains why Nietzsche understood we had limited freedom rather than radical freedom. Limited freedom, freedom, I suppose, is referring to the fact that there's constraints. Yeah. Or um, what is radical freedom? What is freedom? So Sartre was like believed in absolute freedom mm -hmm. um, and that he could do whatever he wanted in his imagination. 
And Nietzsche understood that his freedom was somewhat more limited. Mm -hmm. And it kind of takes me back to this computer game that I played when I was 10. So I think it's called Dragon's Lair. <laughs> okay. Do you yeah. know Dragon's Lair? I think I know Dragon's Lair, yeah. Dragon's Lair, I knew I was being conned, right? Dragon's Lair, when you play the game, you're lucky that you grew up in a basically procedurally generated world. That was RPG a little bit. No, it's like, uh, is it turn-based play? Was it? Uh, it, was no. A, no, it was a role-playing game, role -playing. but really good graphics, and one of the first laser discs. And oh, when no. you actually flick the stick, you, you took, it's like it was like a graphical adventure game with animation. Yeah. And when I played this game, I really, you know, you could get through the game in 12 minutes if you knew what you were doing without making mistakes. You just play the disc, play the disc, play the disc. So it was just that timing. And actually, it was a complete fraud because all the animation has been pre-recorded on the disc. Yeah, It's like the Black Mirror, the first interactive where they had all the, you know, several million uh, kind of uh, permutations of the movie that you could select on Netflix. I've forgotten the name of it. So this was a exactly that in the laser disc so you basically go left go right fight the ogre slay the dragon and when you flick the joystick at the right time it just goes to the next animation to play yeah. it's not really generating it yeah and i played that game and i knew i was being had <laughs> so I, oh, okay i see i see so to you uh dragon there is the first time you realized that free will is an illusion yeah <laughs> and why We're not, does assembly theory give you hints about free will whether it's an illusion or not yeah so no so not tightly if i do think i have some will and i think i am an agent and i think i can interact and i can play around with my with the model i have of the world and the cost functions right and i can hack my own cost functions which means i have a little bit of free will but as much as i want to do stuff in the universe i don't think i could suddenly say I mean, actually, this is ridiculous because now I say I could try and do it, right? It's like I'm suddenly give up everything and become a rapper tomorrow, mm -hmm. right? Or, or maybe I, I could try that, but I don't have sufficient um, agency to make that necessarily happen. I'm on a trajectory. So when in Dragon's Lair, I know that I have some trajectories that I can play with where, where Sartre re realized he thought that he had no assembly, no memory. He could just leap across and do everything. And Nietzsche said, okay, I realize I don't have full freedom, but I have some freedom. Mm -hmm. And I and the assembly theory basically says that. It says, if you have these constraints in your past, they limit what you are able to do in the future, but you can use them to do amazing things. Mm -hmm. Let's say I'm a poppy plant and I'm creating some opiates. Mm -hmm. the opiates are really interesting molecules. I mean, they're obviously great for medicine, great cause great problems in society. But let's, let's imagine we fast forward a billion years. What will opiate the opioids look like in a billion years? Well, we can guess because we can see how those proteins will evolve and we can see how the secondary metabolites will change. Mm -hmm. And But they can't go radical. They can't, they can't suddenly become, I don't know, like an, um, a molecule that you find in an OLED in a display. Mm -hmm. They will have some, they will be limited by their, the causal chain that produced them. Right. And that's what I'm getting at, saying you're, we're predictable, we are, unpredictably predictable or predictably unpredictable, predictably unpredictable within a constraint on the trajectory we're on. Yeah, so the predictably part is the is the con constraints of the trajectory and the unpredictable part is the part that you still haven't really clarified of the origin of uh, of the little bit of freedom. Yeah. So you're you're just arguing, you're you're basically saying that the radical freedom is impossible. You're you're really operating in a world of constraints that are constrained by the memory of the trajectory of the chemistry that led to who you are. Okay, but uh, you know, 
even just a tiny bit of freedom, even if everything, if everywhere you are in cages, if you can move around in that cage a little bit, yeah. you're free. I agree. I mean, and so the question is, in assembly theory, if we're thinking about free will, where does the little bit of freedom come from? What is the I that can decide to be a rapper? What, why, what is that? That's a cute little trick we've convinced each other of so we can uh, do fun tricks at parties or is there something fundamental that allows us to feel free, to be free? I think that that's the question that I want to answer. I know you want to answer it. And I think it's so profound. I Let me have a go at it. I would say that I don't take the stance of Sam Harris because I think Sam Harris, when he said the way he says it is almost, it's really interesting. I'd love to talk to him about it. Sam Harris almost thinks himself out of existence, right? Because he said, oh, I don't, <laughs> because, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, he has different views on consciousness versus free will. I think he saves himself with consciousness. He thinks himself out of existence with free will. Thing, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that means there's no point, right? So I, He's I, a leaf floating on a river. Yeah, uh, um, I, I think that he, he, he's, I don't know, I'd love to ask him whether he really believes that and then we could play some games. Oh, yeah. Like, no, no, I then would say I'll get him to play a game of cards with me and I'll work out the conditions on which he says no and then I'll get him in the conditions he says yes and then I'll trap him in his logical inconsistency with that argument. Because uh, at, some point, at some point when he loses enough money or you, the prospect of losing enough money, um, there's a way of basically mapping out a series of so what 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 will is about let's not call it free will what will is about is to have a series of decisions equally weighted in front of you and those decisions aren't necessarily energy minimization those decisions are a function of the model you've made in your mind you're in your simulation yep. and the way you've interacted in reality and also other interactions that you're having with other individuals and happenstance and yeah. I think that you ha there's a little bit of delay in time. So I think what uh, what you're able to do is say, well, I'm going to do the counterfactual. I've done all of them. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to I'm going to go this way. And you probably don't know why. I think free will is actually very complex interaction between your conscious your unconscious and your conscious brain. And I think the reason why we're arguing about it so it's so interesting in that and um, we just some people um, outsource their free will to their unconscious brain. And some people try and overthink the free will in the conscious brain. I would say that Sam Harris has realized his conscious brain doesn't have free will, but his unconscious brain does. That's my guess, right? And that he can't have access to the unconscious yeah, brain. Yeah, and that's kind of annoying. And, and, but and so he's just, he's going to, through meditation, come to acceptance with that fact. Yeah, just... which is maybe okay. I maybe, but I do th think that I have the ability to make decisions and I like my decisions. In fact, I mean, this is an argument I have with with, with uh, some people that um, some days I feel I have no free will and it's just an illusion. And this is one, and it makes me more radical if you like, you know, mm. as a, in, that I get to explore more of the state space and I'm like, I'm gonna try and affect the world now. I'm really gonna ask the question that maybe I dare not ask or dare not, or do the thing I dare not do. Mm -hmm. And that allows me to kind of explore more. It's funny that, um if you truly accept that there's no free will, that is a kind of radical freedom. It's funny, <laughs> but you're, because 
the little bit of the illusion in under that framework that you have that you can make choices. If choice is just an illusion of psychology, you can do whatever the hell you want. That's the But we don't, do we? And I think But because you don't truly accept that you you think that there's like you think there's a choice, which is why you don't uh, just do whatever the hell you want. Like you feel like there's some responsibility for making the wrong choice, which is why you don't do it. But if you truly accept that the choice has already been made, then you can go, I don't know what is the most radical thing. Um, I mean, but I'll, yeah, I don't, I wonder what, what am I preventing myself from doing that I would really want to do? Um, probably like humor stuff. Like I would, I would love to, if I could like save a game, do the thing and then reload it later, like do undo, it'd probably be humor just to, just to do something like super hilarious. <laughs> That's super embarrassing. And then just go, I mean, it's basically just fun. I would add more fun to the world. I mean, I sometimes do that. So I've, you know, um, I sometimes, um, I try and I try and mess up my reality in unusual ways by just doing things because I'm bored, but not bored. I'm not expressing this very well. I think that this is a really interesting problem that perhaps the hard sciences don't really understand that they are responsible for because the question about how life emerged and how intelligence emerges and consciousness and free will, they're all ultimately boiling down to some of the same mechanics, I think. My feeling is that they are the same problem again and again and again. Mm -hmm. The transition from a you know, a, a boring world or a world in which there is no selection. So I wonder if free will has something to do with selection and models and, and also the models you're generating in the brain and also your the amount of memory, working memory, have available at any one time to generate counterfactuals. Oh, that's I, fascinating. So like the decision-making process is a kind of selection. Yeah. And that, that could be just absolutely another, yet, another, yet another manifestation of the selection mechanism that's uh, pervasive throughout the universe. Okay, that's fascinating to think about. <laughs> yeah there's not some kind of fundamental its own thing or something like that that is just yet another example of selection yeah and, and in a universe that's intrinsically open you want to do that because you generate novelty you mentioned something about do cellular automata exist outside the human mind in our little offline conversation um why is that an interesting question so uh cellular automata complexity What's the relationship between complexity in the human mind and uh, trees falling in the forest? Infrastructure. So the CA. So when John von Neumann and Conway and Feynman were doing CAs, they were doing it on paper. CA is cellular automata. Yeah, just drawing them on paper. How awesome is that, that they were doing cellular automata on paper? Yeah. And then they were doing a computer that takes like forever to print out anything and program. Sure. People are not with the TikTok kids these days with the TikTok don't understand how amazing it is to just play with cellular automata, arbitrarily changing the rules as you want the initial conditions and see the beautiful patterns emerge. Same with fractals, all of that. Oh, I've just, got a, all, you've just given me a brilliant idea. I wonder if there's a TikTok account that's just dedicated to putting out CA rules, and if it isn't, we should make one. One hundred percent, and that will get. So we have millions of views. I mean, like millions. Yes, no, it'll get. Uh, it'll get dozens. Or just of, have it running. Um, so look, I, I kind of, CA. I love CAs. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, no, I. <laughs> we do have to. We just have to make one. We, I, I, I actually a few years ago, 
I made some robots that talked to each other, chemical robots that, that played the game of Hex, um, invented by John Nash, mm-hmm. um, by doing chemistry. And they communicated via Twitter, which experiments they were doing. And they had a, they had a, they had a, they had a lookup table of experiments. And robot one said, I'm doing experiment 10. And the other robot, okay, I'll do experiment one then. And they communicated via like, Twitter and like then publicly or yeah, yeah. DMs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, can, can you maybe quickly explain what the game of Hex is? Uh, yes, yeah, so it's a, basically a board, uh, hexagonal board, mm-hmm. and you try and basically you color each hexagon, each element on the board, each hexagon, and you try and get from one side to the other, and the other one tries to block you. Wait, uh, how are they connected? Uh, wh- so what wh- the robots? Uh, so, so, so it's a chemical. Uh, yeah, let's go back. So the ro- two robots. Yeah. Each robot was doing dye chemistry, so making RGB, red, green, blue, red, green, blue, red, cool. green, blue, and they could just choose from experiments to do red, green, blue. Um, initially, I said to my group, we need to make two chemical robots that play chess. And my group were like, that's too hard. No, too complicated. go away. Um, but anyway, so we had the robot. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if people listening to this uh, should probably know that Lee Cronin is a, a is an amazing group of brilliant people. He's exceptionally well-published. He's written a huge number of amazing papers. Whenever he... Uh, calls himself stupid and is is a sign of humility, and I deeply respect that and appreciate it. So, pe- people listening to this should know this is a, this is a world class scientist who doesn't take himself seriously, which I really appreciate and love. Anywho, <laughs> talking about serious science, we're back to um, your group rejecting your idea of chemical robots playing chess via dies uh so you went to a simpler game of hex okay so yeah, what the, what the, else the team that did it were brilliant i really take I, the i think they still have ptsd from doing it because i said this is a workshop what i'd often do is i so i have a, about 60 people on my team mm-hmm. and occasionally before lockdown i would say i'm a bit bored we're gonna we're gonna have a workshop on something who wants to come and they're basically about 20 people turn up to my office and i say we're gonna do this mad thing and then the, it would just self organize and some of them were like no i'm not doing this and then we, you get lo- you get left with the the happy dozen yeah and what we did is we built this robot and doing dye chemistry is really easy you can just take two molecules react them together and change color and what i wanted to do is have a palette of different molecules you could react combinatorially and get different colors mm-hmm. so you got two robots and i went wouldn't it be cool if the robots basically shared the same list of reactions to do mm-hmm. and they said oh i'm and because then you could do a kind of multi-core chemistry like they weren't so you could have two chemical reactions going on at once mm-hmm. and they could basically outsource the problem but Rough. they're sharing the same tape exactly okay so robot one would say i'm going to do i'm going to do experiment one and the other robot says i'll do experiment 100 and then they, co- they, they cross it off but i wanted to make it that's groovy. brilliant by the way i want to make that it- is genius sorry well yeah. I, I wanted to make it groovier and i said look let's have them competing yeah to make to so they're playing a game of hex and so when the robot does a it does an experiment and the more blue the die, the more it gets the the chance, the higher chance it gets to make the move it wants on the hex board. Mm-hmm. So if it gets a red color, is like it gets downweighted in the other robot. And so what the robots could do is they play each player move, and because the fitness function or the the optimization function was to make the color blue, they started to invent um, <laughs> reactions we didn't weren't on the list. Mm-hmm. And they did this by not cleaning, because we made cleaning optional. So when one robot realized if it didn't clean its pipes, it could get blue more quickly. Yeah. And the other robot realized that, so it was like getting dirty as well. And they, they 
unintended consequences of super intelligence. Okay, but <laughs> that uh, was the game, and we we part, communicating uh, through Twitter though. They were they were doing it through Twitter, and Twitter banned them a couple of times. I said, "Come on, you've got a couple of robots doing chemistry. It's really cool. Stop yeah. banning them." Yeah. But and then, in the end, they had we had to take them off Twitter, and they just communicated via a server because it was just there were people saying you could still find it Cronin Lab One and Cronin Lab Two on Twitter, and it was like make move wait. You know, mix A and B, wait 10 seconds, yeah. answer blue, you know. <laughs> I, I really find it super compelling that you would have a chemical entity that's communicating with the world. That was one of the things I want to do in my origin of life reaction, right? Is basically have a, have a reactor that's basically just randomly enumerating through chemical space and have some kind of cycle. And then read out what the molecules reading out using a mass spectrometer, mm -hmm. and then convert that to text and publish it on Twitter, <laughs> and then wait until it says I'm alive. <laughs> I reckon that would get, I reckon that that Twitter account would get a lot of followers. Yeah, and I'm still trying to convince my group that we should just make an origin of life Twitter account where it's going blah, 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 and it's like hello testing, yeah. I'm here. <laughs> well, I'll share it. I like it. I particularly enjoy this idea. <sighs> of a non-human entity communicating with the world via a human-designed social network. It's quite a, a, quite a beautiful idea. How we were talking about uh, CAs existing outside oh, yeah. the human mind. Yeah, so I really admire Stephen Wolfram. I think he's a genius, clearly a genius. And trapped is actually, it's like a problem with being so smart is you get trapped in your own you know, mind, right? And I, I tried to actually, I tried to convince Stephen that assembly theory wasn't nonsense. He was like, no, it's just nonsense. <laughs> I was a little bit sad by that. So nonsense applied, even if we applied to the simple, simplest well, had, construct of a uh, one-dimensional cellular automata, for example. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, actually, maybe I'm doing myself a bit too down. It was, it was, a, it was just as the theory was coming through, and I didn't really know how to explain it. Mm -hmm. But, but we are going to use assembly theory in CAs instead of automata. But I'm, I wanted to. What I was really curious about is why people are um, marvel i mean you marvel at cas and their complexity and i said mm -hmm. well hang on that complexity is baked in because if you play the game of life in a ca you have to run it on a computer yeah. you have to have a you have to do a number of operations put in the boundary conditions so is it surprising that you get this structure out is it manufactured by the boundary conditions and and it is interesting because i think a set, um cellular automata running them uh, is teaching me something about what real numbers are and aren't. <laughs> and I haven't quite got there yet. I was playing on the airplane coming over and just realized I have no idea what real numbers are, really. And then I was like, well, I do actually have some notion of what real numbers are. Um, and I think thinking about real numbers as functions rather than numbers is more appropriate. And then if you then apply that to CAs, then you're saying, well, actually, um, why am I seeing this complexity in this, in this rule? Is it, is it, you know, is it, is, a, is it, you've got this deterministic system and yet you get this incredible structure coming out. Mm -hmm. Well, isn't that what you'd get with any real number as you, as you apply it as a function and you're trying to read it out to an arbitrary precision? And I wonder if CAs are just helping me, well, my, my misunderstanding of CAs might be helping me understand them in terms of real numbers. I don't know what you think. Yeah, well, the function, but... Uh, the devil's in the function. Mm -hmm. it's like, wh which is the function that's generating your real n number? Like the, I, that, it seems like it's very important 
the specific algorithm of that function because some lead to something super trivial, some lead to something that's all chaotic, and some lead to things that are just walk that fine line of complexity and we'll take a, that yeah, structure. I think we agree. So let's take it back a second. So take the logistic map or something, logistic equation, where you have this equation, which is um, you don't you don't know what's going to happen at n plus one, but once you've done n plus one, you know for all time. You can't predict it. For me, CAs and logistic equation feel similar. And and I think what's incredibly interesting, and I share your kind of wonder at running a CA, but also I'm saying, well, what is it about the boundary conditions and the way I'm running that calculation? So in my group, with my team, we actually made a chemical CA. We made Game of Life. We actually made a physical grid. I haven't been able to publish this paper. It's been trapped in purgatory for a long time. But so you wrote it up as yeah. a paper how to do a chemical formulation of the Game of Life. Which we is made quite... a chemical computer and, one, and little cells. And I was playing Game of Life. With the BZ reactions. Each oh, cell would beautiful. pulse on and off, on and off, on and off. Yeah. And we have little stirrer bars and we have little gates. Yeah. And we actually played Conway's Game of Life in there. And we got structures in that. We got structures in that game from the chemistry that you wouldn't expect from the actual CA. So that's kind of cool in that- um, Because they were, they, were, they were interacting outside of the cells somehow or- So what's happening is you're getting noise. So the thing is oh, that yeah. you've got this BZ reaction that gives on, off, on, off, on, off, but there's also a wake and those wakes constructively interfere or mm -hmm. in such a non-trivial way that, that's, that's non-deterministic. <laughs> and the non-determinism in, in, in the system gives very rich dynamics. And I was wondering if I could physically make a chemical computer with this CA um, that, that gives me something different that I can't get in a silicon representation of a CA where all the states are clean because you don't have the noise trailing into the next round. You just have the state. So the the paper in particular, so the, it's just a beautiful idea to use a chemical computer to construct a cellular automata and the famous one of Game of Life. But it's also interesting and it's, it's a really interesting scientific question of whether some kind of random perturbations or some source of randomness can um, have a uh, significant constructive effect on the yeah, complexity and, of the system. And indeed, I mean, whether it's random or just non-deterministic, and can we bake in that non-determinism at the beginning, you know, I wonder what what is the, I'm trying to think about what is the encoding space. The encoding space is pretty big. We have um, 49 stir-ups of 49 cells, 49 chem bits, mm -hmm. all connected to one another in like an analog computer, but being read out discreetly as the, chem, the BZ reaction. So just to say the BZ reaction is a chemical oscillator. And what happened in each cell is it, it goes between red and blue. So two Russians discovered it, Beluzov, Zaposkinsky. Mm -hmm. I think Beluzov first proposed it and everyone said, you're crazy, it breaks the second law. And Zaposkinsky said, no, it doesn't break the second law, it's consuming a fuel. <laughs> and so, and then, and, and it's a, like, there's a lot of, uh, um, uh, chemistry hidden in the Russian literature, actually, that just because Russians just wrote it in Russian, they didn't publish it in English-speaking yeah, journals. It's, and, it's heartbreaking, actually. Well, but yeah. it's it, yeah, sad, and uh, it's great that it's there, right? It's not lost. I'm sure we will find a way of translating it properly. Yeah. Well, the, the silver lining slash greater sadness of all of this is there's probably ideas in in English-speaking, like there's ideas in certain disciplines that if discovered by other disciplines, 
would crack open some of the biggest mysteries in those disciplines. Like computer science, for example, is uh, trying to solve problems like nobody else has ever tried to solve problems. Yeah. <laughs> as, as, as if it's not already been all addressed in cognitive science and psychology, in mathematics, in physics, in uh, just whatever you want to, economics even. But if, if you look into that literature, you might be able to dis discover some beautiful ideas. Obviously Russian is, um, is an interesting case of that's because there's a loss in translation, but you said there's a source of fuel, a source of energy. Yeah, yeah. So the BZ reaction, you have a you have a, an acid in there called malonic acid. Yeah. And what happens is it it when it rea it, when it it power it's basically like a battery that powers it, and it loses CO two, so decarboxylates. It's just a chemical reaction. What that means we have to do is continuously feed, or we just keep the BZ reaction going in a in a long enough time, so it's. It's like it's reversible in time, <laughs> <laughs> but only like, yeah, only, but only like. But um, but it's fascinating. I mean, the, the team that did it, I'm really proud of their persistence. We made a we made a chemical computer. Um, it can solve little problems. It can solve traveling salesman problems, actually. Nice. Um, but like I say, it's co it's but not any faster than a regular computer. Is there um, is there some, is there something you could do? Maybe I'm not sure. I'm I'm not. I think we can come up with a way of solving problems, also really complex, hard ones, because um, uh, it's an analog computer, and we can we can the it can energy minimize really quickly. It doesn't have to basically go through every element in the matrix, like and flip it. It reads out, so we can actually do Monte Carlo by just shaking the box. <laughs> it's literally a box shaker. <laughs> you don't actually have to encode the shaking of the box in a silicon memory and then just shuffle everything around. Yeah, and you it's analog. So it's analog, it's natural, so I, it's a uh, uh, it's a, it's an organic computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're so I was playing around with this, and I was kind of annoying some of my colleagues and wondering if we could get to chemical supremacy, like quantum supremacy. And I kind of calculated how big the the grid has to be so we can actually start to solve problems faster than a silicon computer. Mm -hmm. But I'm not willing to. Um, to state how that is yet, because I'm probably wrong. It's not that I'm, I'm. It's any top secret thing. Is I want. I think I can make a chemical computer that can solve optimization problems faster than the silicon computer. That's fascinating. And but then you, you're unsure how big that has to be. Yeah, I think. I mean, it I, might be a big box, hard to shake. It know. might be exactly a big box, hard to shake, and basically a bit sloppy. <laughs> Did we answer the the question about uh, do uh, cellular time exist outside the mind? We didn't, but I would I would posit that they don't, and I, I and but I think minds can well. So the mind is fundamental. Uh, what, what's the what why? I mean? It, well, I mean, sorry, let's just go to the back. So, as a physical phenomena, do CAs exist in physical reality? Right, I would say they probably don't exist outside the human mind, but now I've constructed them. They exist in computer memories. They exist in my lab. They exist on paper. So they are they emerge from the human mind. I'm just interested in, because Stephen Wolfram likes CAs, a lot of people like CAs, and likes to think of them as minimal computational elements. I'm just saying, well, do they exist in reality or are they a representation of a simple machine that's just very elegant to implement? So it's a platonic question, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's um, there's initial conditions, there's a memory in the system, there's simple rules that uh, dictate the evolution of the system. So what exists the idea the rules the yeah people are using cas as models for things in reality to say hey look 
you can you can do this thing in a CA. And my my when I see this, I'm saying, oh, that's cool. But what does that tell me about reality? Where's the CA in in space time? Oh, I see. Well, yeah. right. There's a mathematical object. So for, for people who don't know, cellular automata, there's a is usually a grid, whether it's one dimensional, two dimensional, or three dimensional, and it evolves by simple local rules, like you die or are born if uh, the neighbors are alive or dead. And it turns out if you have, uh, with certain kinds of initial conditions and with certain kinds of very simple rules, you can uh, create like arbitrarily complex and beautiful systems. And to me, um, you know, whether uh, drugs are involved or not, I can sit back for hours and enjoy the the mystery of it, how such complexity can emerge is, it gives me almost like, you know, people talk about religious experiences. It gives me a sense that you get to have a glimpse at the uh, origin of this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Whatever is creating this complexity from such simplicity is the very thing that brought my mind to life. This me, the human, uh, our our human civilization, and yes, those constructs are pretty trivial. They're, they're, I mean, that's part of their magic. Is even in this trivial framework, you could see the emergence, or especially in this trivial framework, you could see the emergence of complexity from simplicity. Uh, I guess what Lee you're saying is that this is not, you know. Um, this is highly unlike systems we see in the physical world, even though they probably carry some of the same magic, like yeah. mechanistically. I would. Say, I mean, I'm saying that the 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 operating system that a CA has to exist on is quite yeah. complex, right? And so, I wonder if you're getting the complexity out of the CA from the boundary conditions, the operating system. The underlying digital computer. Oh wow! So you, those are some strong words against CAs. Then I didn't. Not, not against. I mean, I'm in. The, I'm in love with CAs as well. Right. I'm just saying, they aren't as trivial as people think. They are incredible. Yeah. To get to that richness, you have to iterate billions of times, and you need a display, and you need a math coprocessor, yeah. and you need a von Neumann machine, based on a Turing machine with digital error correction. And states. Wow. To, to think that for the simplicity of a grid, you're basically saying a grid is not simple. Yeah. It requires incredible complexity to bring a grid to life. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, then what is simple? That's all I wanted to say. I agree with you with the wonder of CAs. I just think, but remember, this, we take so much for granted what the CA is resting on. Because von Neumann and, and uh, Feynman weren't showing weren't seeing these elaborate structures, they could not get that far. Yeah, but that's the limitation of their mind. I, yeah, yeah, that's I, exactly, the limitation of their pencil. <laughs> but I, I think that's, the, the question is whether the essential elements of the cellular automata is, um, is present without all the complexities required to build a computer. And, 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 and uh, my intuition, the reason I find it incredible is that, yeah, my intuition is yes. It might look different. Uh, there might not be a grill structure, a uh, grid-like structure, but local interactions operating under simple rules and resulting in multi-hierarchical complex structures feels like a, a thing that doesn't require a computer. 
I agree. But coming back to von Neumann and Feynman and Wolfram, their, their minds, the non-trivial minds, to create those architectures and do it and to, and to put on those state transitions. And I think that something that's really incredibly interesting that um, is understanding how the human mind builds those, straight, those state transition machines. You're, I could see how deeply in love with the idea of memory you are. So the, it's, it's like how much of E equals MC squared like is more than an equation. It has Albert Einstein in it. Mm -hmm. Like you're saying like, you can't just say this is a, uh, like the equations of physics are a really good, simple capture of a physical phenomena. It is also has the mem that equation has the memory of the humans. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. But I don't. I don't know if you're implying this. I don't. Uh, that's a beautiful idea, but I don't know if I'm comfortable with that sort of diminishing the power of that equation. No, no, it because enhances it. Because it's built it. on the shoulders, it enhances. I think it enhances it. It's not that equation is a minimal compressed representation of reality, right? Yeah. We can use machine learning or or Max Tegmark's um, AI Feynman to find lots of solutions for gravity. But isn't it wonderful that the laws that we do find are the maximally compressed representations? Yeah, but that that representation you can now give it as. I guess the universe has the memory of Einstein with that representation. Yeah. But then you can now give it as a gift for free. Yeah, yeah, it's to other low memory. Civilizations. I used to have to go through a lot of pain together, but it's low memory. So physics, I say that physics and chemistry and biology are the same discipline. They're just physics, laws in physics. There's no such thing as a law in physics. It's just low memory stuff. Because you've got low memory stuff, you can things reoccur quickly. Mm -hmm. As you get building more memory, you get to chemistry, so things become more contingent. When you get to biology, more contingent still, and then technology. So the more memory you need, the more the, your laws are local. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm saying. And that the, the, the less memory, the more the laws are universal because they're not laws. They are just low memory states. We have to talk about a thing you've kind of mentioned already a bunch of times, but doing computation through chemistry, chemical-based computation. I've seen you in it referred to it as in a, in a sexy title of computation computation so what is computation and what is chemically uh chemical based computation okay so computation is a a name i gave to the process of um building a state machine to make any molecule physically in the lab and so as a chemist chemists make molecules by hand and um and they're quite hard. The chemists have a lot of tacit knowledge, a lot of ambiguity. It's not possible to go uniformly to the literature and read a recipe to make a molecule and then go and make it in the lab every time. Some recipes are better than others, but they all assume some knowledge. <laughs> and it's not universal what that is. Like, so it's uh, carried from, from human to human. Yeah some of that implicit knowledge. Yeah. And you're saying, can we remove the humor from the picture? Can we, like a program? Okay. Well, by the way, what is a state machine? <laughs> so a state machine is a, I suppose, a, a, a object, either abstract or mechanical, where you can do, you can um, do a unit operation on it and flick it from one state to another. So a turnstile would be a good example of a state machine. 
I, so there's some kinds of states and some kind of transitions yeah. between states. So, and it's um, very formal in nature in terms of how, like it's precise how yes, you do those transitions. Yes, you can mathematically precisely describe a state machine. So, I mean, a, you know, a very simple Boolean um, gates are a very good way of building kind of logic-based state machines. Um, obviously, a Turing machine, the concept of a Turing machine where you have a tape and a read head and a series of rules in a table and you would basically look at what's on the tape and if you're shifting the tape from left to right and if you see a zero or one you look in your lookup table and say right i've seen a zero and a one um i then do um i then respond to that so the turnstile would be is there a human being pushing the turnstile in direction clockwise if yes, I will open, let them go. If it's anti-clockwise, no. So yeah, so a state machine has some labels and a transition transition diagram. So you are looking to come up with a chemical computer to form state machines to to create molecules or yeah. So mo- it, yeah, which uh, it, what's the chicken and the egg? So computation is not a chemical computer because we talked a few moments about actually doing computations with chemicals. Yeah. What I'm now saying is I want to use state machines to transform chemicals and so so build chemicals programmatically yeah i mean i get in trouble saying this i i said to my my group oh i shouldn't say it because it's this but i said look we should make the crack bot as in the crack robot <laughs> the robot that makes the crack, crack bot the uh, robot, oh, the ro- oh <laughs> crack bot the robot that makes crack but maybe we should scrub this from uh but <laughs> no, or 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 uh well uh, so maybe you can educate me on uh breaking bad with like meth right yeah so in breaking bad so you want to make you want to make um basically some kind of mix of ex machina and breaking bad no <laughs> i don't i don't AI for the record system. i don't but I no, said, you don't <laughs> i said that's what i'm going to do it once you release the papers <laughs> so, uh, but i uh, shave my head <laughs> and i'm going to um uh, live a life of crime. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, uh, no. Um, so, so yeah, let's get back to it. So, it, it, indeed, it is about making drugs, but importantly, making important drugs. Um, so all drugs matter. Yeah, but let's go. Let's go back. So, the basic thesis is chemistry is very analog. There is no state machine, um, and I wandered into the, the through the paper walls in the in the Japanese house a few years ago and said, okay, hey, organic chemists, why are you, why are you doing this analog? And they said, well, chemistry is really hard. You ha- you can't automate it. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. I said, but is it impossible? They said, yeah. And they said, and they said, you know, I got the impression they're saying it's magic. Mm-hmm. And so when people tell me things are magic, it's like, no, no, they can't be magic, right? So let's break this down. And so what I did is um, I went to my my group one day about about eight years ago and said, hey guys, I've written this new programming language for you. Um, and so everything is clear. And you know, you have to, you're not allowed to just wander around the lab willy-nilly. You have to pick up things in order, go to the balance at the right time, and all this stuff. And they looked at me as if I was insane and basically kicked me out of the lab and said, No, don't do that. We're not doing that. Yeah. And I said, okay. So I went back the next day and said, I'm gonna find some money so we can make cool robots do chemical reactions. And everyone went, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> And so in that process, <laughs> the person tried to convert the humans to become robots and, and next you you agreed you might as well just create the robots. Yes, but so in that in, in that the formalization process. Yeah, so what I did is I said, look, a react, chemical to make a molecule, you need to do four things abstractly. I want to make a chemical Turing machine because a Turing machine, you think about, let's imagine a Turing machine. A Turing machine is the ultimate um, abstraction of, of a computation because 
it's been shown by Turing and others that basically a universal Turing machine should be able to do all computations that you can imagine. It's like, wow, why don't I think of a Turing machine for chemistry? Let's think of a magic robot that can make any molecule. Mm-hmm. Let's think about that for a second. Okay, great. How do we then implement it? And I think, right, so what is the abstraction? So to, do a re- a, to make any molecule, you have to do a reaction. So you have to put reagents together, do a reaction in a flask typically then you after the reaction you have to stop the reaction so you do what's called a workup so whatever cool it down add some liquid to it extract so then after you do the workup you separate so you then remove the molecules separate them all out and then the final step is purification so reaction at uh, workup separate purify so this is basically a lot my exactly like a um a turing machine where you have your tape you have your tape head you have some rules and then you run it so i thought cool I went to all the chemists and said, look, chemistry isn't that hard. Reaction, workup, separation, purification. Do that in cycles forever, for any molecule, all of chemistry, done. And they said, "Um, chemistry is that hard. I said, but but just in principle. And and I got a few very enlightened people to say, yeah, okay, in principle, but it ain't going to work. And this was in about 2013, 2014. And I, I found myself going to an architecture conference almost by accident. It's like, why am I at this random conference on architecture? And that was because I published a paper on inorganic architecture. And they said, come to an architecture conference. But the inorganic architecture is about nano architecture. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. And I went, okay. And then I found these guys at the conference 3D printing ping pong balls and shapes. And this is nice. 3D printing was cool. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Why are you 3D printing ping pong balls? And I gave them a whole load of abuse, like I normally yeah. do when I first meet people, how to win friends and influence people. Yeah. And then I was like, oh my God, you guys are geniuses. Yeah. And so I got, I got from, they were a bit confused because I was calling them idiots and then calling them geniuses. It's like, yeah. will you come to my lab and we're going to build a robot to do chemistry with a 3D printer? And I said, oh, that's cool. All right. So I had them come to the lab and we started to 3D print test tubes. So you imagine, yeah. you know, 3D print a bottle and then, and, then in the, and then use the same gantry to basically, rather than to squirt out a plastic out of a nozzle, have a little syringe and jet chemicals in. Cool. So we had the 3D printer that could simultaneously print the test tube and then put chemicals into the test tube. And then... Oh, so it's really end-to-end. Yeah. I was like, that'll be cool because they've got G-code to do it all. I was like, yeah. that's cool. So I got my group doing this and I developed it a bit and I realized that we could take those unit operations and we built a whole bunch of pumps and valves. And I realized that I could basically take the literature and I made the first version of the computer in 2016, 17, I made some architectural decisions, so I designed the pumps and valves in my group. I did all the electronics in my group. They were brilliant. I I, I cannot pay tribute to my group enough in doing this. They were just brilliant. And there were some poor souls there that said, Lee, why are you making us design electronics? I'm like, well, because I don't understand it. And they're like, so you're making us design stuff because you don't understand? It's like, yeah. It's like, but can we not just buy some? I said, well, we can, but then I don't understand how to, you know, what bus they're going to use and the serial ports and all this stuff. I just wanted, and I made, I came up with a decision to design a bunch of pumps and valves mm-hmm. and use power over ethernet. So they've got one cable for power and data, plug them all in, plug them all into a router. And, um, and then I made the state machine mm-hmm. and there was a couple of cool things I did or they did actually. Um, we got the, the abstraction. So reaction, work uh, up separation, um, purification. And then I made the decision to do it in batch. Now it's in batch. All chemistry had been digitized before, apparently, once it's been done. But everyone had been doing it in flow. 
and flow is continuous and there are infinities everywhere and you have to just and i realized that i could actually make a state machine where i basically put stuff in the reactor turn it from one state to another state mm -hmm. stop it and just read it out and okay and i was kind of pitching at electrical engineers saying you have it easy you don't have to clean out the electrons you know electrons don't leave a big mess they leave some em waste but in my state machine i built in cleaning so it's like we do an operation and then it cleans right. the backbone then can do it again so there's That's no fascinating so what we managed to do over a couple of years is is develop the hardware develop the state machine and we encoded three molecules we did three the first three we did nitol with sleeping drug rufinamide anti-seizure and viagra you know, and I would like to make jokes on the paper. It's a hard problem, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very good. <laughs> and, then, and then in the next one, what we did said, okay, my poor organic chemist said, look, Lee, we've, we've worked with you this long. We've made a robot that looks like it's going to take our jobs away and, and not just take our jobs away, the, what we love in the lab, but now we have to become programmers, but we're not even good programmers. We just have to spend ages writing lines of code that are boring yeah. and it's not as elegant. I went, you're right. So then, but I knew because I had this abstraction and I knew that there was language, I could suddenly develop a state machine that would interpret the language, which was lossy and ambiguous, and populate my abstraction. So I built a chemical programming language that is, is actually going to be recursively innumerable. It's going to be a Turing complete language, actually, which is kind of cool, which means it's formally verifiable. So where we are now is we can now read the literature using a bit of natural language processing. It's not the best. There are many other groups that have done a better job. But we can use that language reading to populate the state machine and basically add, subtract. A, we've got about a number of primitives that we, that, you know, basically program loops that we dovetail together and we can make any molecule with it. Okay. So that's, that's the kind of program synthesis. So you start at like literally you're talking about like a paper like a scientific paper that's being read. Yep. So natural language processing, extracting some kind of uh, details about chemical reactions and uh, the, the, the chemical mo molecules and compounds involved. And then that's th that uh, in GPT terms serves as a prompt for the program synthesis, that's kind of trivial right now. There you have a bunch of different like for loops and so on mm -hmm. that creates a program in this chemical language that can then be interpreted by the chemical computer, uh, the computer. Yeah, computer, uh, that's Computer, yeah. <laughs> uh, everything sounds better in your uh, British accent, by the way, it's, <laughs> I love it. So the in, into the computer and that's able to then b basically be a 3D printer for these for molecules. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a 3D printer. I would call it a universal chemical reaction system because 3D right. printing gives the wrong impression. But yeah, and, and it purifies. And the nice thing is that that code now, that we call it chem, the, the KIDL code, is, is really interesting because now, so computation, what is computation? Computation is um, what computing is to mathematics, I think. Computation is the process of taking chemical code and some input reagents and making the same molecule making the molecule reproducibly every time without fail what is computation it's the process of taking a pro using a program to take some input conditions and give you an output same every time mm -hmm. right reliably so the the problem is now maybe you can push back and correct me on this so i know biology is messy 
my question is how messy is chemistry? So the if we use the analogy of a computer, it's easier to make computation in a computer very precise, that it's repeatable, it makes errors almost never. If it does the exact same way over and over and over and over. What about chemistry? Is there messiness in the whole thing? Can that be somehow leveraged? Can that be controlled? Can be that removed? Do we want to remove it from the system? Oh, yes and no, right? There's, is there messiness? There, there is messiness because chemistry is like you're, 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 you're doing reactions on, on billions of molecules and they don't always work, but you've got purification there. And so what we found is at the beginning, everyone said it can't work. It's going to be too messy. It will just fail. And I said, but you managed to get chemistry to work in the lab. Are you magic? Are you doing something? Yeah. So I would say, now go back to the first ever computer or the ENIAC. Five million soldered joints, 400,000 uh, valves that are exploding all the time. Was that, would you have gone, okay, that's messy. Mm -hmm. So we've got the, and, and have we got the equivalent of the ENIAC in my lab? We've got 15 computers in the lab now. And they, are they unreliable? Yeah, they fall apart here and there. But are they getting better really quickly? Yeah. Are they now able to reliably make, are we at the point in the lab where there are some molecules we would rather make on the computer um, than have a human being make? Yeah, we've just done, we've just made a, um, an anti-influenza molecule and some antivirals, um, six steps on the computer that would take a human being about one week to make Arbidol. Um, of continuous labor. And all they do now is load up the reagents, press go button, and just go away and drink coffee. Wow. So this, I mean, and this is, uh, you're saying this computer is just the early days. And so like yeah. some of the criticism just have to do with the early days. And yes, I, I would say that something like this is uh, quite impossible. Uh, you know, so the, the fact that you're doing this is incredible. Not not impossible, of course, but extremely difficult. It it did seem really difficult, and I do keep pinching myself when I go in the lab. I was like, "Is it working?" Like, "Yep." And it and it's not. You know, it does clog. It does stop. You got to clean. This is great. It's, you know, but it's um it's getting more reliable because I made some. We just made design decisions and said we are not going to abandon the abstraction. Think about it. If the if you the von Neumann implementation was abandoned. I mean, think about what we do to semiconductors to really constrain them mm -hmm. to um, what we do to silicon in a fab lab. We take computation for granted. Silicon is not in its natural state. We are doping the hell out of it. It's incredible what they're able yeah. to accomplish and uh, achieve that reliability at the scale they do. Like you said, that's after Moore's Law what we have now. Yeah. And so just, what we, you know, uh, how it started, you know, so now we're here. We now. started at the bottom, now we're here. We have only have 20 million molecules, well, say 20 million molecules in one database, maybe a few hundred million in all the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and those few hundred million molecules are, re are responsible for all the drugs that we've had in humanity, except, you know, biologics for the last 50 years. Now imagine what happens when a drug goes out of print, goes out of print because there's only a finite number of manufacturing facilities in the world that make these drugs. It's out of print. Yeah. The computer. This is the printing press. The computer. For chemistry. Yeah. And, and not only that, we can protect the KIDL so we can stop bad actors doing it. We can encrypt them and we can give people license. Yeah, that's the name, sorry to interrupt, is the name of the programming yeah. language? It, the KIDL is the name of the programming language and the pro code we give the chemicals. So Chi, as in, you know, just for, it's like a, it's actually like an XML format, but I've now taken it from script to a, to a fully 
expressible programming language. So we can do dynamics and there's for loops in there and conditional statements. Right. But the structure, it started out as a, um, like a like an XML yeah. type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now we also, the chemist doesn't need to program in KIDL. They can just go to the software and type in add A to B, reflux, do what they would normally do, and it just converts it to KIDL, and they have a linter to check it. And error so corrects. how do you, um, you know, not with ASCII, but because it's a Greek letter, how, how do you go with, um, how do you spell it just using the, the English alphabet? We just... XDL? Just, XDL, but all we use, we put in Kai. And it was named by one of my students and I, one of my postdocs many years ago, and I quite liked it. It's like, it's, a cool uh, it's important, I think, when the team are contributing to such big ideas, because it's their ideas as well. It's, I try not to just rename, I didn't call it Cronin or anything that, because they keep saying, you know, is a, um, is a, the, the chemistry, when they're putting stuff in the computer, one of my students said, we are asking now, is it Cronin complete? And I was like, what does that mean? I said, well, can we make it on the damn machine? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, is that, is that a compliment or a, or a majorative? And they're like, well, it might be both. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you tweeted, quote, why does chemistry need a universal programming language, question mark? For all the reasons you can think of. Reliability, interoperability, collaboration, remove ambiguity, lower cost, increase safety, open up discovery, molecular customization, and publication of executable chemical code, which is fascinating, by the way. Just publish code. And um, can you maybe elaborate a little bit more about this KIDL? What does a universal language of chemistry look like? A Cronin complete language. Well, it's a Turing complete language, really. It's um, but um, so what it has, it has a series of operators in it, like add heat, stir. Um, so there's a bunch of just unit operations. And all it is really is just, uh, it's with chemical engineers, when I talked about this, that you've just, re you've just, you've just rediscovered chemical engineering. And I said, well, yeah, I know. I said, well, that's, you know, that's trivial. I said, well, well, not really. Well, yes, it is trivial. And that's why it's good because we've not only have we discovered, rediscovered chemical engineering, we've made it implementable on a universal hardware that doesn't cost very much money. And so, the KIDL has a series of statements like define the reactor. So it defines the uh, reagents. So they're all labels. So you assign them. And what we, I also implemented at the beginning is because I give all the hardware IP address, you put it on a graph. And so what it does is like uh, the graph is equivalent to the, the processor firmware, the, the processor code. So when you take your KIDL, and you go to run it on your computer, you can run it on any compatible hardware in any configuration. It says, what's your, what's your graph look like? As long as I can solve the problem on the graph with these unit operations, and you have the resources available, it compile, chem piles. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I, I, we can carry on for years. But it is really, it's compilation. And, compilation, yeah. and what it now does is it says, okay, the problem we have before is it was possible to do robotics for chemistry, but the robots were really expensive. They were unique. They, they were vendor locked. And what I want to do is to make sure that every chemist in the world can get access to machinery like this at virtually no cost because it makes it safer. It makes it more reliable. And then if you go to the literature and you find a molecule that could potentially cure cancer, and let's say the molecule that could potentially cure cancer takes you three years to repeat, and maybe a student finishes their PhD in the time and they never get it back, 
Um, so that it's really hard to, to kind of get all the way to that molecule and it limits the ability of humanity to build on it. If they just download the code and can execute it, it turns, I would say, the electronic laboratory notebook in chemistry is a data cemetery because no one will ever reproduce it. But now the data cemetery is a Jupyter notebook and you can just execute notebook it. And people can play with it. The, yeah. the access to it. Reversion Orders it. of magnitude yeah. is increased. Uh, we'll talk about the, so as with all technologies, I think there's way more exciting possibilities, but there are also terrifying possibilities and we'll, we'll talk yeah. about all of them. But let me just kind of linger on the machine learning side of this. So you're describing programming, but it's a language. I don't know if you've uh, heard about OpenAI Codex, which is- uh, Yeah, I'm playing with it. Are you playing with <laughs> Of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> you really are Rick from Rick and Morty. This is great. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Except philosophically deep. I mean, he is, I guess, kind of philosophically deep too. So uh, for people who don't know, GPT, GPT-3, it's a language model that can do natural language generation. So you can give it a prompt and it can uh, complete the rest of it. But it turns out that that kind of prompt, it's not just completes the rest of it, it's generating uh like novel sounding text and then you can apply that to generation of other kinds of stuff uh, so these kinds of uh, transformer based uh, language models are really good at forming at uh, uh, forming deep representations of a particular space of like a medium like language so you can then apply it to a specific subset of language like programming so you can have it learn the representation of the Python programming language and use it to then generate uh, syntactically and semantically correct uh, programs. So you can start to make progress on one of the hardest problems in computer science, which is program synthesis. How do you write programs that accomplish different tasks? So what uh, OpenAI Codex does is it to generate those programs based on a, a prompt of some kind Usually you can do a natural language prompt. So basically, as you do when you program, you write some uh, a comment, which serves the basic documentation of the inputs and the outputs and the function of the particular set of code, and it's able to generate that. Point being is you can generate programs uh, using machine learning, using neural networks. Those programs operate on the boring old computer. Can you generate programs that operate, there's gotta be a clever version of programs for this, but uh, can you write programs that uh, operate on a computer? Yep, there's actually software out there right now, you can go and do it. Really? So yeah, yeah, it's a heuristic, it's rule-based, but we have what we've done, inspired by Codex, actually, is um, over the summer, I ran a little workshop. Some of my groups got this inspired idea that we should get a load of um, uh, students and ask them to manually collect data to label chemical procedures into KIDL. And um, we have a thing called SynthReader. So, there, so there's a lot, bunch of people doing this right now, but they're doing it without uh, abstraction. And because we have an abstraction that's implementable in the hardware, um, we've developed a, basically a, a chemical analog of codex what we're using. Uh, when you say, sorry to interrupt, when you say uh, abstraction in the hardware, what do you mean? So right now, a lot of people doing machine learning and reading chemistry 
and just and saying, oh, you've got all these operations, add, shake, whatever he, right, right. but they, but because they don't have a uniform, um, I mean, there's a couple of groups doing it, uh, competitors actually, and they're good, very good, but um, they can't run that code automatically. It, it They are losing meaning. And and with and the really important thing that you have to do is generate context. And so what we've learned to do with our abstraction is make sure we can pull the context out of the text. And so can we take a chemical procedure and read it and generate our executable code? Yes. What's the hardest part about that whole pipeline from the initial text, interpreting the initial text of a paper, extracting the meaningful context and the meaningful chemical information to then generating the, the program to then uh, running that program in the hardware? What's, what's the hardest part about that pipeline as we look towards a universal touring computer? So the, the hardest computer, the, har the hardest thing with the uh, the pipeline is that um, the software the, the model gets confused between some meanings, right? So if you know chemists are very good at inventing words that aren't broken down. So I would the, the classic word that you would use for boiling something is called reflux. So reflux is um, you would have a salt, you'd have a solvent in a round bottom flask at reflux, it would be boiling, going up the reflux condenser and coming down. But that term reflux to reflux could be changed, you know, to people often make up words, mm -hmm. <laughs> new words, and the and then the software can fall over. But what we've been able to do is a bit like in Python or any programming language, is identify when things aren't matched. So you present the code and you say, this isn't matched. You may want to think about this. And then the, the user goes and says, oh, I mean reflux, and just ticks a box and collects mm -hmm. it. So what, it, what the codex or the chemex uh, does in this case is it just, it, it suggests a, the first go, and then the chemist goes in and corrects it. And I really want the chemist to correct it because it's not safe, I believe, for, for to allow AI to just read literature and generate code at this stage because now you're having actual uh, by the way chemex nice uh <laughs> nice name uh so you you are unlike which is fascinating it's, we live in a fascinating moment in human history but yes you're literally connecting ai to some physical and like it's building something in the physical realm yeah especially in the space of chemistry that operates sort of invisibly. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's right. And it's it's really important to understand those labeling schemes, right? Uh, and one of the things I was never, I was always worried about at the beginning that the abstraction was going to fall over. And the way we did it was just by brute force to start with. We just kept reading the literature and saying, is there anything new? Can we add a new rule in? And actually our KIDL language expand, exploded. There were so many extra things we had to keep adding. And then I realized the primitives still were maintained and I could break them down again. So we get it. it's pretty good. I mean, there are problems. There are problems of you know interpreting any big sentence and turning it into an actionable code. And the codex is not without its problems. You can you can crash it quite easily, right? You can generate nonsense. But boy, it's interesting. I would love to learn to program now using codex, right? Just tr hacking around, right? And I wonder if chemists in the future will learn to do chemistry by just hacking around with 
the system and writing in different things. Because the key thing that we're doing with the chemistry is that where a lot of mathematical chemistry went wrong is people, and I think uh, Wolfram does this in Mathematica, he assumes that chemistry is a reaction where atom A or molecule A reacts with molecule B to give molecule C. That's not what chemistry is. Mm-hmm. Chemistry is take take some molecule, take a liquid or a solid, mix it up and heat it, <laughs> and then extract it. So the programming language is actually with respect to the process operations. Mm-hmm. And if you flick in process space, not in chemical graph space, you unlock everything because there's only a finite number of processes you need to do in chemistry. And that yeah. and that's reassuring. And so so we're in the middle of it. It's really exciting. Um, it's not you know the be all and the end all. And there is, like I say, errors that can creep in. One day we might be able to do it without human interaction. You simulate it, and you'll know enough about the simulation that will it the you know I'm, the lab won't catch fire. But there are so many safety issues right now that we've got to really be very careful. You know, protecting the user, protecting the environment, protecting misuse. I mean, there's lots to discuss if you want to go down that route because it's very very interesting. You don't want novichoks being made or or um, explosives being made or or recreational drugs being made. But how do you stop a molecular biologist making a drug that's going to be important for them looking at their you know particular assay on a bad actor trying to make methamphetamine? <laughs> I saw how you looked at me when you said bad actor, but that's exactly <laughs> what I'm going to do. I'm trying to get the details of this so I can be first. Oh, uh, don't worry. We can protect you from yourself. Okay. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure that's true, but uh, that statement gives me hope. Does this ultimately excite you about the future or does it terrify you? So let's, we mentioned that time is fundamental. It seems like you're at the cutting edge of progress that will have to happen, that will happen, that there's no stopping it. And I, as we've been talking about, I see obviously a huge number of exciting possibilities. So whenever you automate uh, these kinds of things, just the world opens up. It's like programming itself and the computer, regular computer has uh, created innumerable applications and made the world uh, better in so many dimensions. And it created, of course, a lot of negative things that we, for some reason, like to focus on using that very technology to tweet about it. Uh, But I think it made a much better world, but it created a lot of new dangers. So maybe you can speak to when you have, when you kind of stand at the uh, end of the road for uh, building a really solid, reliable, universal computer, um, what are the possibilities that are positive? What are the possibilities that are negative? How can we minimize the chance of the negative? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the, there's so many positive things from drug discovery, from supply chain um, uh, stress, for basically enabling chemists to basically build more productive in the lab, right? Where well, this isn't the computer is not going to replace the chemist. There's going to be a Moore's law of molecules, right? There's going to be so many more molecules we can design, so many more diseases we can cure. So chemists in the lab, as researchers, that's better for for science, so they can build a bunch of um, 
uh, like they could do science at a much more accelerated yeah. pace. So it's not just the development of drugs, it's actually like doing the, yeah. the basic understanding of the science of drugs. And the personalization, the cost of drugs right now, we're all living longer, we're all having more and more, we know more about our genomic development, we know about our, our you know, our predetermination, and we might be able to, one dream I've got is like, uh, imagine, you know, you you're, you can work at your genome assistant tells you you're gonna get cancer in seven years time, and uh, you have your personal computer that cooks up the right molecule just for you to cure it, right? That's a really positive idea. Yeah. The other thing is, um, is when drugs... So right now, I think it's absolutely outrageous that not all of humanity has access to uh, medicine. And I think the computer might be able to change that fundamentally because it's, it will disrupt the way things are manufactured. So let's stop thinking about manufacturing in, in different factories. Let's say that computers clinical grade computers or drug grade computers will be in facilities all around the world and they can make things on demand as a function of the cost you know maybe people won't be able to afford the latest and greatest patent but maybe they'll be able to get the next best thing and we'll basically democratize and make available drugs to everybody that they need you know and you know there's lots of uh, of really interesting things there so i think that's going to happen I think that now let's take um, the the negative. Before we do that, let's imagine what happened. We'll go back to a really tragic accident a few years ago. Well, not an accident, an act of murder by that pilot on the. I think it was Eurowings or Swiss Wings. But what he did is, the plane took off. Um, he waited till his pilot went to the toilet. He was a co-pilot. He locked the door, and then set the the autopilot the 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 um, above the Alps. He set the altimeter or the, the, the descend height to zero. So the computer just took the plane into the Alps. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, that was such a tragedy that obviously the guy was mentally ill, but it wasn't just a tragedy for, for him, it was for all the people on, on board. But what if, and I was inspired by this, and my thinking, what can I do to do, to, to anticipate problems like this in the computer? Had the, had the software, and I'm sure Boeing and Airbus will be thinking, oh, Maybe I can give the computer a bit more situational awareness. So whenever one some tries to drop the height of the plane and it knows it's above the Alps, we'll just say, uh, no, computer says no, we're not letting you do that. Mm -hmm. um, of course, he would have been able to find another way, maybe fly it until it runs out of fuel or something. But, you know. Keep anticipating all the large number of trajectories that can go negative, all those kinds of running into the Alps and uh, try to... Uh at least make it easy for the engineers to build systems that are protecting us that. Yeah, and and let's just think, so what are in the computer world right now with KDLs, let's just not think about what I'm doing right now. What I'm doing right now is it's completely open, right? Everyone's going to know KDLs and be playing with them, making them more easier and easier and easier. But what we're going to start to do, it makes sense to encrypt the KDLs in such a way you, you let's say you work for a pharmaceutical company and you have a license to make given molecule well you get issued with a license by the fda or your local authority and they'll say right you're licensed to do it here it is it's encrypted and the kydl gets run so you have a license for that instance of use easy to do computer science has already solved the problem so the fact that we all trust online banking right the right now then we can secure it i'm 100 sure we can secure the computer and because of the way we have a many you know it's like the same um uh, mapping problem that you to actually reverse engineer a KDL will be as hard as reverse engineering the encryption key. Mm. <laughs> you know, brute force. It will be cheaper um, to um, to just actually buy the regulated medicine. And actually, people aren't going to want to then 
make their own fa fake pharmaceuticals because it'll be so cheap to do it. Mm. We'll drop the cost of access to drugs. Now, what will happen? Recreational drugs. People start saying, well, I want access to recreational drugs. Well, it's going to be up to, it's going to accelerate that social discussion that's yes. happening in the US and Canada and, and the UK, everywhere, right? Because cost goes down, access, yeah. access goes up. Given cannabis, THC, to some people who've got epilepsy isn't literally, forgive the term, a no-brainer because these poor people go from seizures like every day to maybe seizures just once every few months. So that's, that's an interesting idea to try to minimize the chance that it can get into like the hands of individuals like terrorists or people that want to do harm. Now, with that kind of thing, you're putting a lot of power in the hands of governments, in the hands of institutions. And so then emerge the kind of natural criticism you might have of governments that can sometimes use these for ill, use them as uh, weapons of war, not weapon, not uh, tools of uh, betterment. So, um, and sometimes not just war against other nations, but war against its own people, as it has been done throughout history. Well, I'm thinking, so there's another way of doing it, a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer version where, and what you have to do, I'm not saying you should adopt a blockchain, but there is a way of maybe taking KIDLs and put them on blockchain. Here's an idea. Let's just say, the way we do it in my lab right now is we, we go to the literature, we take a, uh, a recipe to make a molecule, convert that to KIDL, and diligently make it in the robot and validate it. We, that, so we, that I would call mining, proof of work, proof of synthesis. <laughs> Right, proof of the synthesis. Yeah, okay, yeah, but cool. this is cool because yeah, it's suddenly, cool. it's when you cool. do, it, when you actually synthesize it, you can get the analytical data. But there's also a fingerprint in there of the impurities that get carried across because you can never make one something 100% pure. That fingerprint will allow you to secure your KDL. Mm -hmm. So what you do is encrypt those two things. So suddenly you can have people out there mining, mm -hmm. and what you could do perhaps is do the type of thing we need to basically look at the way that contact tracing should have been done in COVID where people are given the information. So you've just been in contact with someone COVID. Mm -hmm. You choose. I'm not telling you to stay at home. You choose, right? So now if we could imagine a similar thing, like, you know, you have got access to these chemicals. They will have these effects. You choose and publicize it, or maybe it's out somewhere. I don't know. I'm not a policymaker on this. And what I, my job here is to not just make the technology possible, but to have it as open as a discussion as possible with people to say, hey, can we stop childhood mortality with this technology? And do those benefits outweigh the one-off where people might use it for terrorism or people might use it for recreational drugs? Chemify, which is the name of the entity that will make this happen, mm -hmm. I think we have, we have some social responsibilities as an entity to make sure that we're not enabling people to manufacture personal drugs, weapons at will. And what we have to do is have a discussion with society with the people that invest in this, with people that are going to pay for this, mm -hmm. to say, well, do you want to live longer? And do you want to be healthier? And are you willing to accept some of the risks? And I think that's a discussion to have. So by the way, when you say personal drugs, do you mean the illegal ones? Or do you have a concern of just putting the manufacturer of any kind of illegal drugs in the hands of, of um regular people because they might like dose matters they might take yeah, way I'm, too much 
I mean, I would say, to be honest, the, uh, the, the chances of computers being, well, should always never. So the fact I can now say this means it's totally going to come yeah, true, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to do it. I, I cannot imagine that computers will be in people's houses anytime soon, but they might be at the local pharmacy, Got it. right? And, they, and if you've got a drug manufacturing facility in, in every town, then you just go and they give you a prescription. And they do it in such a way, they format it so that you, you don't have to take 10 pills every day. You get one manufactured for you that has all the materials you need and the right distribution. Got it. But you mentioned recreational drugs and and the reason I mentioned it because I know people are going to speak up on this. If the drug is legal, there's to me no reason why you can't manufacture it. I mean, for yeah, recreation. I'm, I mean, you can do it What right do you now. have against Funly? <laughs> I, I have, so I mean, I'm a chemistry professor in a university who's an entrepreneur as well, I just think I need to be as responsible as I can in the discussion. Sure. Um, no, sure, sure. Yeah. But I know, I'm, so let me be the one that says like, there's nothing, because you have said recreational drugs and like terrorism in the same sentence. Yeah, yeah. I think, okay. uh, I think let's make sure let's we draw a line sure. uh, that there's real dangers to the world of terrorists, of bio-warfare, and then there's uh, a little bit of weed. So. so I have, I mean, I, I think it's up to the society to, yes. to tell its governments what it wants, what's acceptable, exactly. right? Yeah. And if it becomes, let's say that THCs become, you know, heavily acceptable and that you can modify them. So let's say there's, let's say it's like blood type. There's a particular type of THC that you, that you tolerate better than I do. Mm -hmm. Then why not? Why not have a machine that makes the one you like? Yeah, and then and why not it's the perfect brownie? <laughs> yeah. And I I think that that's fine. Um, but I'm you know I, we're so far away from that. I, I can barely get the thing to work in the lab, right? And I mean it's reliability and all this other stuff. But what I think is going to happen in the short term, it's going to turbocharge molecular discovery, yes. reliability, and that will change the world. That's super exciting. You have a draft of a paper titled Autonomous Intelligent Exploration, Discovery, and Optimization of Nanomaterials. So we are talking about automating engineering of nanomaterials. How hard is this problem? And as we continue down this thread of the positives and the worrisome, what are the things we should be excited about? And what are the things we should be terrified about? And how do we minimize the chance of the of the uh, terrifying consequences. So in this robot, the robot does all the heavy lifting. So the robot basically is an embodied AI. I really, I really like AI in in, in a domain specific way. One of the, actually I should say at this point, there was an attempt in the sixties. Uh, Joshua Ledenberg and some really important people did this that made an AI to try and guess if organic molecules in a mass spectrometer were alien or not. Yes. And they did, they failed because they didn't have assembly theory. <laughs> <laughs> I see. And when I and I and wait, that, wait, what does assembly theory give you about alien versus human life? Well, no, it just they, it tells you about unknown, the degree of unknown. So you can fingerprint stuff. They weren't Got looking it. at um, they were trying to basically just look at the corpus of or complex organic molecules. Mm -hmm. So I when I was a bit down about assembly theory because I couldn't couldn't convince referees and couldn't convince computational um, people interested in computational complexity. I was really quite depressed about it, and I mean, I've been working with with Sarah Walker's team, and she, I think she, you know, I think she also invented assembly theory in some way. We can talk about it later. When I found the AI not working for 
the dendral project, I suddenly realized I wasn't totally insane. Coming back to this nano robot, so what it does is basically a, like a computer, but now what it does is it squirts a liquid with gold in it in the test tube, and it adds um, some uh, reducing agents, so some electrons to make the gold turn into a nanoparticle. Now, when gold becomes a nanoparticle, it gets a characteristic color, a plasmon. So it's a bit like if you look at the sheen on a gold wedding ring or a gold bar or something. Those, those are the ways of conducting electrons, basically reflect light. What we did is we randomly squirt the gold, the gold particle and the reducing agent in, and we measure the UV. We measure the color. And so what we do is we've got the robot has a mind. So it has a mind where uh, in a simulation, it randomly generates nanoparticles and the plasmon, the color that comes out, randomly imagines in its head. It then, with the other, so that's the imaginary side of the robot. In the physical side of the robot, it squirts in the chemicals and looks at the color and it uses a genetic algorithm and a map elite actually on it. And it goes around in cycles and refines um, the color to the objective. Now we use two different points. We have an exploration and an optimization. They're two different. So the exploration just says, just do random stuff and see how many different things you can get. And when you get different things, try and optimize and make the peak sharper, sharper, sharper. And what it does after a number of cycles is it physically takes a sample of the optimized nanomaterial, resets all the, the round bottom flasks, cleans them, and puts the seed, physical seed, back in. And then what this robot is able to do is, is search a space of 10 to the 23 possible reactions in just a thousand experiments in three days. Hmm. <laughs> and it makes five generations of nanoparticles, which get nicer and nicer in terms of shape and color and definition. And then at the end, it outputs a KDL code that can then be- Wow, it's doing the search for programs in the physical space. Yeah. So it's doing a kind of reinforcement learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the uh, physical space. With the exploration and the optimization. And that KDL will work on any computer or yeah. any qualified hardware. So now that's it. That's Now that's a general piece of code that can yeah. replicate uh, somewhat, maybe perfectly yeah. what it created. That's yeah. amazing, that's incredible. But the nanoparticles themselves are dumb. The robot has all the thinking. So we don't try and imply any self-replication or try and get the, the, the particles to make themselves, although it would be cool to try. So, well, there you go. That's that. Those are famous last words <laughs> for the end of human civilization. Yeah. Would be cool to try. So is it possible to create molecules that start approaching this question that we started this conversation, which which is the origin of life, so to start to create molecules that have lifelike qualities. So have the replication, have like complex, start to create complex organisms. So we have done this with the oxides I talked about earlier with the molybdenum oxides and the rings and the bulls. And the problem is that, that well, they, are, they do, they autocatalytically enhance one another. So they would, I guess you would call it self-replication. But because there's limited um, function and mutation, they're pretty dumb. So they don't do very much. So I think the prospect of us being able to engineer 
a nanomaterial, a nanomaterial life form in the short term. Like I said earlier, my aim is to do this, of course. I mean, I'm, you know, on one hand, I'm saying it's impossible. On the other hand, I'm saying I'm doing it. So which is it, Lee? You know, it's like, yeah. uh, well, like, we're, I think we can do it, but only in the robot. So the causal chain that's going to allow it is in the robot. These particles, if they do start to self-replicate, the system's going to be so fragile mm -hmm. that I don't think anything dangerous will come out. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't treat them as potentially, you know, um, I mean, I don't want to scare people like gain of function. We're going to produce stuff that comes out. Our number one kill switch is that we always try to search a space of objects that don't exist in our reality, don't exist in the environment. So even if something got out, it just would die immediately. It's like making a silicon life form or something, or, uh, you know. Which is the opposite of uh, oftentimes gain of function research is focused on like, how do you get a, a dangerous thing to be closer to something that works with humans, yeah. So and have it jump to humans. So that's a one. That's one good mode to operate on is always try to operate on chemical entities that are very different than uh, the the kind of chemical environment that humans operate in. Yeah, and and also, I mean, I'll say something dramatic, which may not be may not be true. So I should be <laughs> careful. If, let's say, we did discover a new living system and it was made out of a, a shadow biosphere and we just released it in the environment, who cares? It's going to use different stuff. It'll just live. Just live, yeah. I, I found one of my biggest fantasies is actually is like a planet that's basically half in the sun. It doesn't rotate, right? And, mm -hmm. and you have two different origins of life on that planet and they don't share the same chemistry. And then the only way time they recognize each other is when they become intelligent. They go, well, what's that moving? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder so they, they co-evolve and that's fascinating. I mean, so one fascinating thing to do is exactly what you were saying, which is a, a life bomb, yeah. which is like try to focus on atmospheres or um, chemical conditions of other planets and try within this kind of uh, uh, the exploration optimization system tried to discover life forms that can uh, work in those conditions and then you send those life forms over there and uh, yeah. see what kind of stuff they build up like you can do like a large scale it's kind of a safe physical environment to do large scale experiments it's another planet yeah so look I'm going to say something quite contentious I mean Elon wants to go to Mars I think it's brilliant wants to go to Mars but I would counter that and say do, is Elon just obsessed with getting humanity off Earth? Or what about just technology? So if we do technology, so so Elon either needs to take a computer to Mars because he needs to manufacture drugs, right, on yeah. demand, right? Because you zero cost payload and all that stuff is just yeah. code. Or what we do is we actually say, hang on, it's quite hard for humans to survive on Mars. Why don't we write a series of origin of life algorithms where we put our cult embed our culture in it, right? It's yeah. a very Ridley spot, Prometheus, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is a terrible film, by the way. But anyway, uh, um, and dump it on Mars and just terraform Mars. And what we do is we evolve life on Mars that is suited to life on Mars. Yeah. Rather than brute forcing human life on Mars. So one of the questions is, you know, what what is human culture? What are the things you encode? Some of it is knowledge. Some of it is information. Yeah. But the thing that Elon talks about, and the thing I the thing I think about, I think you think about as well, is some of the more unique aspects of human nature of, of what makes us human, uh, which is our particular kind of consciousness. 
So he talks about the flame of human consciousness. Yeah. That's one of the questions is, can we um, instill consciousness into other beings? Because that's a sad thought that whatever this thing inside our minds that hopes and dreams and fears and loves can all die. Yeah, but I think you already know the answer to that question. Um, I have a robot lawnmower at home. My kids call it CC, cool car. It's a robo mow. And it, the way it works, it has an electric field around the perimeter and it just tell it the, the area and it, it, it goes out and goes from its base station, just mows a bit, gets to the perimeter, detects perimeter, and then chooses a random angle, ro rotates around and goes on. Yeah. But my kids call it cool cutter. It's a she. I don't know why it's a she. They just, they, when they were like quite young, they called it, um, I don't want to be sexist there. It could be a he, but they liked, um, <laughs> They, they gendered the lawnmower? They gendered the lawnmower. Okay. Yeah, why not? But I was thinking this lawnmower, if you apply integrated information theory to the lawnmower, the lawnmower is conscious. Now, information, integrated information theory um, is that people say it's a flawed way of measuring consciousness, but I don't think it is. I think assembly theory actually measures consciousness in the same way. Consciousness is something that is generated over a population of objects of humans. Consciousness didn't suddenly spring in. Our consciousness has evolved together, right? The, f the fact we're here and the robots we leave behind, they all have some of that. So we won't lose it all. Sure, consciousness requires that we have many models being generated. It's not just one domain-specific AI, right? I think the, the way to create a consciousness, I'm going to say unashamedly, the best way to, write a chemical con to make a consciousness is in a chemical system mm. because you just have access to many more states. And the problem right now we're making silicon consciousness is you just don't have enough states. So there are more possible states, or sorry, there are more possible configurations possible in your brain than there are atoms in the universe. And you can, you can switch between them. You can't do that on a core i10. It's got, it's got 10 billion, 12 billion, 14 billion transistors, but you can't, you can't reconfigure them as dynamically. Well, you've shared this intuition a few times already that the larger number of states somehow correlates to greater possibility of life. It's also possible that constraints are essential here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but but coming back to the, you worry that something's lost, I agree. Um, but I think that, um, you know, we will get to an AGI, but I wonder if it's, if it's not, it can't be separate from human, it can't be separate from human consciousness because the causal chain that produced it came from humans. So the what I kind of try and suggest heavily to people worry about, um, the existential threat of AI saying, I mean, you put it much more elegantly earlier, like we should worry about algorithms on, dumb algorithms written by human beings on Twitter okay. driving us insane, right? And doing, acting in odd ways. Yeah, I think intelligence, this is what I, I have been ineloquent in trying to describe it, partially because I try not to think too deeply through this stuff because then you become a philosopher. I, I still aspire to actually building a bunch of stuff. But my sense is super intelligence leads to um, deep integration into human society. So like in, intelligence is strongly correlated. Like um, intelligence, the way we conceive of intelligence materializes as a thing that becomes a fun, entity to have at a party and with, yeah. with humans. So like uh, 
It's a mix of wit, intelligence, humor, like intelligence, like knowledge, ability to do uh, reasoning and so on, but also humor, emotional intelligence, ability to love, to uh, to dream, to share those dreams, to um, to play the game of um, human civilization, the push and pull, the whole dance of it, the whole dance mm-hmm. of life. And I think that kind of super intelligent being is not the thing that uh, that worries me. I think that ultimately will enrich life. It's again, the dumb algorithms, the dumb algorithms that scale in the hands of people that are too, don't study history, that don't study human psychology and human nature, just applying too broadly for selfish near-term interests. That's the biggest danger. Yeah, I think it's not a new danger, right? Um, right. I now know how I should use Twitter and how I shouldn't use Twitter, right? Um, I like to provoke people into thinking. I don't want to provoke people into outrage. It's not fun. It's not a good thing for humans to do, right? And I think that when you get people into outrage, they they take sides. Mm -hmm. And taking sides is really bad. But I think that we're all beginning to see this. And I think that actually, I'm very optimistic about how things will evolve. Because, you know, (laughs) I wonder how much how much productivity has Twitter and social media taken out of humanity? Because how many now, um, I mean, so the good thing about Twitter is it gives power, so it gives voice to minorities, right? And uh, and that's good in some degree. But I wonder how much voice does it give to all sorts of other problems that don't need that this emerge? By the way, when you say minorities, I think, uh, or at least, if I were to agree with you, what I would say is minorities broadly defined, any yeah. small groups yeah. uh, of people that uh, it magnifies the concerns of yeah. the small versus the big. That is good to some degree. Um, but I think, I mean, I have to be careful because I think I have a, a very, I mean, I think that the world isn't that broken, right? I think the world is a pretty cool place. I think yeah. academia is really great. I think climate change presents a really interesting problem for humanity that we will solve. I like how you said it. It's a pretty cool problem <laughs> but it, for civilization. It's a big one. Well, it's a sure. bunch of, I want to- There's I, a bunch of really, yeah. really big problems that if solved can significantly improve the quality of life for a large, it, that ultimately is what we're trying to do. Improve like how awesome life is for the maximum number of people. Yeah, and I think the the, the coming back to consciousness I don't think the universe is doomed to heat death, right? It's one of the optimists. That's why I want to kind of nudge you into thinking that time is fundamental. Because if time is fundamental, then suddenly you don't have to give it back. Mm-hmm. The, uni- the universe just constructs stuff. you know. And what we see around us in our construction, I know everyone's worried about how fragile civilization is. And I mean, look at the fundamentals. We're, the good, we're good until the, uh, the, the, the sun expands, right? We've got quite a lot of resource on Earth. We're trying to be quite cooperative. Humans are nice to each other when they uh, when they're not under enormous stress. But coming back to the consciousness thing, are we going to send human beings to Mars or conscious robots to Mars, or are we going to send some hybrid? Um, and, and I don't know the answer to that question right now. I guess you know Elon's going to have a pretty good go at getting there. I'm not yeah. sure whether I have my. I have my doubts, but I'm not qualified. You know, I'm sure people have their doubts that computation works. Yeah. But 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 I've got it working, and I you know. And most most of the uh, cool technologies we have today, and take for granted, like the airplane. 
aforementioned airplane were things that uh, people doubted. Every yeah. like majority of people doubted before they uh, came to life. Yeah, and they come to life. And speaking of hybrid AI and humans, it's fascinating to think about all the different ways that hybridization, that merger, can happen. I mean, we have currently have the smartphone, so there's already a hybrid. But there's all kinds of ways that hybrid happens. How we and other technology play together, like a computer. Mm-hmm. How that changes the fabric of human civilization is like wide open who knows who knows if you remove if you remove cancer if you remove major diseases from uh humanity uh there's going to be a bunch of consequences we're not anticipating yeah. uh, many of them positive but uh, many of them negative many, many many of them most of them at least i hope are weird and wonderful and and fun in ways that are totally unexpected. And we sitting on a porch with a bottle of Jack Daniels and a rocker will say, kids these days don't appreciate how hard we had it back in the day. I gotta ask you, um, speaking of nudging, you and uh, Yosha Bach nudge each other on Twitter quite a bit in uh, wonderful intellectual debates. And of course, for people who don't know, Joshua Bach is this brilliant guy. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. You tweeted, or he tweeted, he tweeted, Joshua Bach, everyone should follow him as well. You should definitely follow Mr. Lee Cronin, Dr. Lee Cronin. Um, He tweeted, dinner with Lee Cronin. We discussed that while we can translate every working model of existence into a Turing machine, the structure of the universe might be given by wakes of non-existence in a pattern generated by all possible automata, which exist by default. And then he followed on saying, face-to-face is the best. So the dinner, the dinner was face-to-face. What is Joshua talking about uh, uh, in wakes, quote, wakes of non-existence in a pattern generated by all possible automata, which exists by default. So automata exists by default, apparently. And then there's wakes of non-existence. What the hell is non-existence in the universe? That's a auto- that's, um, and also in another conversation, um, you tweeted, it's state machines all the way down, which presumably is the origin story of this yeah, yeah. discussion. Yeah. And then Joshua said, <laughs> again, nudging, nudging nudging slash trolling uh joshua said you've seen the light welcome friend many foundational physicists effectively believe in some form of hypercomputation. lee is coming around to this idea and then you said i think there are notable differences first i think the universe does not have to be a computer second i want to understand how the universe emerges constructors that build computers and third is that there is uh, something below church touring. Okay. What the heck is this dinner conversation about? Uh, maybe, and put another way, maybe zooming out a little bit, are there interesting agreements or disagreements between you and, and Joshua Bach that, uh, that can elucidate some of the other topics we've been talking about? Yeah, so Yasha is an incredible mind and he has, he's so well read um, and uses language really elegantly. It bamboozles me at times. So I'm uh, so often I'm using I'm describing concepts in a way that I, I built from the ground up, 
And so we we misunderstand each other a lot. And he's floating in in the clouds. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Something like, no, not quite. But I think so. This concept of a Turing machine. So a Turing machine. Turing machines. I would argue, um, and I think um, this is not the Turing machine. The universe is not a Turing machine. Biology is not even a Turing machine, right? And because Turing machines don't evolve, right? There's a there is this problem that people see Turing machines everywhere, but. Isn't it interesting? The universe gave rise to biology, that gave rise to intelligence, that gave rise to Alan Turing, who invented the abstraction of the Turing machine, and allowed us to digitize. And and so, I've been looking for the mystery at the origin of life, the origin of intelligence, and the origin of this. And I, when I discussed with Yasha, I think he, Yasha, he was saying, well, the universe, of course, the universe is a Turing machine. Of course, it's, there's a there's a hypercomputer there, and I. And I think we got kind of trapped in our words and terms because, of course, it's possible for a Turing machine or computers to exist in the universe. We have them. But what I'm trying to understand is where did the transition of continuous to discrete occur? And I've been, and this is because of my, my general foolishness of understanding um, the continuous. But I guess what I'm trying to say is there were constructors before there were abstractors. Because how did the universe abstract itself into existence? <laughs> and it goes back to earlier saying, could the universe of intelligence have come first? What's a constructor? What's an abstractor? So the abstractor is the ability of, say, of Alan Turing and Gödel and, Veri and, and, and Church to, to think about the mathematical universe and to label things and then from those labels to come up with a set of axioms with those labels and to basically understand the universe mathematically and say, okay, I can label things. Mm -hmm. But where did the labeler come from? Mm -hmm. Where is the prime labeler? Even if the universe is not a Turing computer, does that negate the possibility that a Turing computer can simulate the universe? Like just because the abstraction was formed at a later time, does, I, does that mean that abstraction? This is to our cellular automata conversation. Yeah, you were taking away some of the magic from the cellular automata because very intelligent biological systems came up with that cellular automata. Well, this is where the existence is the default, right? Is it does the fact that we exist and we can come up with a Turing machine? Does that mean the universe has to be a Turing machine as well? <laughs> but can it be a Turing machine though? That's a oh, so I, the has to be and the can it be? Can it be? Sure. Um, I don't know, I don't understand if it has to be or not. Can it be? But can the universe have Turing machines in it? Sure, they, do, they exist now. I'm wondering though, maybe, and this is, this is when things get really hairy, is I think the universe maybe in the past did not have the computational power that it has now. This, this is almost like a, law of physics kind of it's it, so the computational power is not you can get some free lunch yeah i mean we, the fact that we now we sit here in this period in time and we can imagine all these robots and all these machines and we built them and so we can easily imagine going back in time that the universe was capable of having them but i don't think it can so the universe may have been a lot dumber yeah computationally and i think that's why I don't want to go back to the time discussion, but I think it has some relationship with it. The universe is basically smarter now than it used to be, and it's going to continue getting smart, smarter over time because of novelty, 
generation and the ability to create objects within objects within objects. You know, there's a, perhaps as grounded in physics, there's this intuition of conservation. Yeah. That stuff is conserved. Like, like you're not, you've always had all, everything, you're just rearranging books on the bookshelf through time. So, okay. But you're saying like new books are being written. Which laws you want to break? At the origin, at the origin of the Big Bang, you had to break the second law because we got order for free. Yeah. Well, what I'm telling you now is that the energy isn't conserved in the universe. Oh, it was the second law. Okay, I got you. So because, and then, but not in a mad way. Okay, so computation potentially is not conserved, which is a fascinating idea. Uh, intelligence is not conserved. Uh, complexity is not conserved. Mm -hmm. I suppose that's deeply connected to uh, time being fundamental. The natural consequence of that is if time is fundamental and the universe is inflating in time, if you like, then there are one or two conservation laws that we need to have a look at. And I wonder if that means the total energy of the universe is actually increasing over time. And it, I might, this may be completely ludicrous, but um, we do have all this dark energy. That's, we, ha we have some anomalies, let's say, dark matter and dark energy. If we don't add them in, galaxy, so dark matter, I think, doesn't, doesn't hold, you know, you need to hold the galaxies together and there's some other observational issues. Could dark energy just be time? So figuring out what dark energy is might give us some uh, deep clues about this, not just time, but the consequences of yeah. time. So it could be that, I mean, I'm not saying there's perpetual motions allowed in this free lunch, but I'm saying if the universe is intrinsically asymmetric and it appears to be, um, and it's generating novelty and it appears to, um, couldn't that just be a mechanistically how reality works? Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, I don't really like this idea that the... And so I want to live in a deterministic universe that is undetermined. <laughs> yeah. Right? The only way I can do that is if time is fundamental. Because otherwise, it's all, all the rest of it is just, it's just sleight of hand. Because the physicist will say, yes, everything is deterministic. Newton is Newtonian mechanics is deterministic. Quantum mechanics is deterministic. Let's take the Everettian view, and then basically we can just draw out this massive universe branching, but it closes again. We can get it all back. And don't worry, your feeling of free will is effective. But what the physicists are actually saying is the entire future is mapped out, and that is clearly problematical, and clearly, um, <laughs> was, that's not so clear. Yeah, it's it, just it's just problematic. It, well, yeah, yeah. So it's it's because uh, that maybe is just the way it is. It's problematic to you, a particular well, creature along this timeline. I want to reduce the number of beliefs I need to understand the universe. So if time is fundamental, I don't need to have magic order at the beginning, and I don't need a second law. But you do need the magical belief that time is fundamental. Well, I need the I need the observation that I'm seeing to be just the, how it is all the way down. But the Earth also looks flat if you, if you agree with your observation. So we can't necessarily trust our observation. I know the Earth isn't flat because I can send a satellite into space. And no, I can but fly. now you see, now uh, you're no, but, using the tools of but, science and the technology. But, but, I'm using, but I'm saying I'm gonna do experiments that start to show. I mean, yeah. I, I think that yeah. it's worth, 
So if you can't, so if I cannot do an experiment or a thought experiment that will test this assumption, then the assumption is without merit, really. In the end, you know that's it's fine. Yeah. So that's a beautiful ideal you hold yourself to. That's that's a that's given that you think deeply in a philosophical way, you think about some of these really important issues, and you have theoretical frameworks like uh, assembly theory. It's really nice that you're always grounded with experiment. That's all I have. <laughs> that's so refreshing. That's so beautifully refreshing. Now that we're holding you to the grounded in experiment, to the harsh truth of reality, let me ask the, the big ridiculous question. What is the meaning of this whole thing? What's the meaning of life? Why? This uh, time is fundamental. It's marching forward. And along this long timeline come along a bunch of descendants of apes that uh, have come up with cellular automata and, and computers and now computers. Why? I have so many different answers to this question. It depends on uh, on what day. I would say that given the way of the conversation we've had today, I'd say the meaning, uh, well, we make our own meaning. I think that's fine. But I think the universe wants to explore every possible configuration that it's allowed us to explore. And this goes back to the kind of question that you're asking about Yasha and the, the existence and non-existence of things, right? So if the universe is a Turing machine, it's churning through a load of states, um, and you think about combinatorial theory before assembly theory, so everything is possible. What Yasha and I were saying is, um, well, not everything is We don't see the combinatorial explosion. We see something else. And what we see is um, um, evidence of memory. So there's there clearly seems to be some interference between the combinatorial explosion of things and what the universe allows. Mm -hmm. And it's like this kind of constructive, destructive interference. So maybe the universe is not just about, um, it, it is assembling objects in space and time, and those objects are able to search more um, space and time, and the universe is just infinitely creative. And I guess I'm searching for why the universe is infinitely creative, or is it infinitely creative? And maybe the meaning is just simply to make as many objects, create as many things as possible. And I, and I see a future of the universe that doesn't result in the heat death of the universe. The universe is going to extract every ounce of creativity it can out of it, because that's what we see on Earth, right? And if you think that almost like intelligence is not conserved, that maybe creativity isn't either. Maybe like it's an infinite well. So like creativity is ultimately tied to novelty. You're coming up with cool new configurations of things, and maybe that just can continue indefinitely. And uh, this human species that was created along the way is probably just one method, like that's able to ask the universe about itself. It's just one way to explore creativity. Maybe there's other meta levels on, on top of that. Like obviously, as a collective intelligence, we'll create organisms. Maybe there'll be organisms that. Uh, ask themselves questions about themselves in uh, in, a, in a deeper, bigger picture way than we humans do. First to ask questions about the humans and then construct some kind of hybrid systems that ask themselves about the collective aspect. Just like some weird stacking that we can't even that's, imagine yet. And that stacking, I mean, I've discussed this stacking a lot with, um, with Sarah Walker, who's a professor of physics uh, and, and uh, astrobiology at ASU. 
And we argue about, you know, how creative the universe is going to be and is it as deterministic as all that? Because I think she thinks she's more of a free will thinker and I'm of a f less free will thinker, but I think we're beginning to converge and understanding that. Um, because there's simply a missing understanding right now. The, we don't we don't understand how the universe. We don't know what rules the universe has to allow the universe to contemplate itself. So asking the meaning of it before we know even know what those rules are is, is premature. But my guess is that it's not meaningless, and it isn't just about the. And there's there are three levels of meanings. Obviously, the universe wants us to do stuff. We're interacting with each other, so we create meaning in our own society and our own interactions for human humanity. But I do think there is something else going on. But because reality is so weird, we're just scratching at that. And I think that we have to make the experiments better. And we have to perhaps join across, not just for the computationalists. And what I try to do with Yasha is meet him halfway, say, well, what happens if I become a computationalist? What do I gain? A lot, it turns out because I can make Turing machines in the universe. Because on the one hand, I'm making computers, which are state machines inspired by Turing. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I'm saying they can't exist. <laughs> well, clearly, that's, that I can't have my cake and eat it. So there's something weird going on there. So then, did the universe have to make a continuous to a discrete transition? Or is the universe just discrete? It's probably mm -hmm. just discrete. So if it's just discrete, then there are... I will then give Yasha his turing-like property in the universe but maybe there's something else below it which is the constructor that constructs the turing machine that then constructs you know it's a bit like the, the you you generate an, a computing system that then is able to build an abstraction that then recognizes it can make a generalizable abstraction because human beings with mathematics have been going be able to go on and build physical computers if that makes any sense mm -hmm. and i think that's the meaning i think that's you know as far as we can, the meaning will be further elucidated with further experiments. <laughs> uh, well, you mentioned Sarah. I think uh, you and uh, Sarah Walker are just these uh, fascinating human beings. I'm really fortunate to um, have the opportunity to be in your presence, to study your work, to follow along with your work. I'm big. I'm a big fan. And like I, I told you offline, I hope we get a chance to talk again with perhaps just the two of us, but also with Sarah. That's a fascinating dynamic. Uh, uh, for people who haven't heard, I suppose on Clubhouse is where I heard you guys talk, but you have an incredible dynamic. And I also can't uh, wait to hear you and Yosha talk. So I, th I think if there's some point in this uh, predetermined or yet to be determined future uh, where the, the three of us, you and Sarah or the four of us with Yosha could uh, meet and talk would be a beautiful future. And I look, I, look, I look forward to most futures, but I look forward to that one in particular. Lee, thank you so much for spending your valuable time with me today. Thanks, Lex. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Lee Cronin. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from the mad scientist Rick Sanchez of Rick and Morty fame. To live is to risk it all. Otherwise, you're just a, an inert chunk of randomly assembled molecules drifting wherever the universe blows you. <laughs> Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.